Let's runners, do you have one of our amazing t-shirts yet giving you the opportunity of a lifetime? Here's an email I got this week from a top shoe designer. This person works in the industry, folks. Thanks for the extra t-shirt. I ordered them in the men's sizes, Rojo, for my boyfriend because he has a hard time finding shirts and they are comfortable, but not too baggy. He loves them. Hasn't taken them off all week. You can get yours now and you can get a special one. The Burrito Track Club t-shirt. This is the last day that you can purchase one. It's been a great month. We had National Burrito Day on April 6th and Cinco de Mayo on, excuse me, National Burrito Day on April 6th, Cinco de Mayo on May 5th, all within one month. And we didn't properly celebrate it. So I'm going to let you celebrate it today. Get the Burrito Track Club t-shirt below cost, $13 each. Go to shop.letsrun.com only for 24 hours. Well, then cut this off Wednesday at midnight. And I know some of you, Ellen, I know a lot of you wanted these shirts but didn't want to support the Shelby Houlihan Defense Fund because all those profits are going to her. Get yours today. Shop.lechman.com. Enter the code BURRITO and check out. Welcome, everyone, to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Outdoor track and field is back and in full swing. We had Diamond League opening day in Doha. Noah Lyles taking down Arian Knight at the Atlanta City Games. And Josette Andrews putting on a show in California at the Sound Running Track Fest. Also at that meet, Caitlin Tui ran a big PB of 15.03. And Connor Burns broke Galen Rupp's high school record in the 5,000 meters run. In less than a second, 13.37, we'll break down all the action from those meets and we'll be joined at the end of the show by TrackFest meet director Jesse Williams of Sound Running, who tells us about what it's like to put together a meet like that. He'll share his thoughts on the attendance, track and field's popularity issue. So stay tuned to the end of the episode for that conversation. This is Jonathan Galt. I am your host alongside the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. Gentlemen, good morning to you. Good morning to you, John. Hopefully people hear me. I've lost my voice. I'm sounding like Robert Kennedy Jr. Maybe I'll be running for president soon. Glad that you're working in the morning. Another day, well done. I don't know if I should tell upper management of this, but I, I called John. And it, was, it was Monday morning. You know, we like to start things early. I rolled into the office at 1230. That's a joke, people. But it was 1230 and finally firing up the computer and called John to see, you know, what we can do. John's like, can't work right now. The soccer game just started. I was like, whoa. No, I'm only giving you a hard time, John. You worked very hard up on... Saturday night, I my my voice was gone. I felt sick. I just said, "Screw the sound running meet." I apologized to Jesse Williams. The, he didn't get the five ninety nine from me. I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and read a great recap. I, I honestly, when I was done reading, I was like, "I bet reading this recap was more enjoyable than having to watch than watching this race for two or three hours." So, thank you for that, John. Well, I accept your compliment, Robert. It is interesting. Saturday night, we've got this big meet. We've been hyping up. Connor Burns runs 13.37. He breaks the high school record. 
in the 5K, I text both of you guys. It's 11 p.m. It's not that early. And I don't get any response. I think both the Brojos were asleep at this point, which this is why you pay me because I was up covering the meet. But just like, you know, this, I view it as a pretty monumental running achievement. And it's a Saturday night. You guys are usually up at 11 p.m. on a weeknight, but Saturday night, I guess you, you were both hit the hay early. Weldon had a big day on Sunday. Yeah, I, I've seen some videos like on social media, like they had a blowout third three 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 year old birthday party on Sunday. Like looked like it might have been a catered spread. There was alcohol everywhere. I saw a picture of some dude like lying down on the on the ground. Well then was it just like a guy that on a second wife he had like gray hair. Was he just was he drunk or was he like too tired to be playing with his child? He, he was down on the thing. But John, I didn't get an invite. Did you get one to the birthday party? I, I didn't. I mean, I'm only one state over. I know. Blowout birthday party. Cece's now three years old. But Robert, it was very tame. I went and bought, we bought like I did buy a bunch of alcohol. I have alcohol for the rest of the summer. My fridge is just packed. We drank probably twenty percent of the beer I bought. Probably about the same of the wine. So prepared for the rest of the summer. And yeah, John, I it's weird. I do sometimes I go to the bed earlier in the weekend during the week. But John, even if I was watching sound running, I'm not sure I would have been watching the B five thousand meters. The whole point of the sound running meet was the good stuff was in a two hour window. And we had instead we had Matthew Sinchwitz running the B fifteen hundred before that and the high school national record being broken by Connor Burns. But we'll get to sound running later. I think we have to start with Doha. The Diamond League is back, baby. And for Supporters Club members, we had a live reaction show that went into your podcast feed. Thank you to all the new subscribers who signed up to listen. If you're not a Supporters Club member, you need to join today. Let'srun.com slash subscribe. You get a second podcast every week. Twice the fun from Let'srun.com. You get savings and running shoes. You join for a year, you get a free t-shirt. The best deal in running. But Doha, well, big picture, Shakari Richardson, right? She gets the big win. For sure. She beat Sharika Jackson and Dina Asher-Smith, two of the best sprinters in the world over the last few years, and beat them convincingly. 10.76, world leader. Shakari looked great. Had a great final 30 meters, looked very strong. Her first Diamond League victory. This was the question, you know, can she keep keep it going? We know she is capable of running fast, but can she do it when it matters? And the Diamond League matters more than the Miramar Invitational. Then you've got USA's and Worlds, which mean even more than the Diamond League. So far, so good for Shikari. It's still early May, but this was a good win for her. She'll be in Nairobi this weekend at the Kip Kano Classic. One of the interesting things that came out about this though we discussed it on our post-race podcast on friday and what's great about that is you get our unfiltered hot takes we're recording within 10 minutes of the meet ending so this is exactly what how we're reacting close to real time with these big storylines and one of the things was after the race shikari said in the flash quotes provided by the diamond league that she'd been kicked out of a hundred meter race and we were kind of wondering what does this mean what was it this race was it well she ran the 100 in doha but where to refer to 
Then I saw a more extended interview with her posted by Nick Sicardi. She was talking about the 100 in Botswana, where she ended up running the 200 there. And we kind of wondered, did it have anything to do with Shelly Ann Fraser-Price? Because we thought it was this Nairobi meet. They're both supposed to be competing, but it looks like they may be in separate events. It's not totally clear. Also, that Botswana meet, remember, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price was also supposed to be in the 100 meters there. And that's where Shakari wound up running the 200. So I do wonder if this sort of thing was related to Shelly Ann Fraser-Price not wanting to race Shakari this early in the season. I don't know. What do you mean you wonder, John? There's nothing to wonder about. I went off on the podcast about that. Of course that's what it's about. And the only way I can say it, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price didn't want to race Shakari Richardson. Like... That's the only way to do it. Now you could say, oh, she wants to get paid more money. But in my book, I guess for premier matchup, you probably should get paid more money. But in my book, Shakari wasn't afraid to do it. Looks like Shelly Ann was afraid to do it. Jamaica probably doesn't want to hear that, but I think Shakari would take her right now. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, Shelly and Fraser Price is going coming off of the greatest season in the history of the 100 meters. I mean, my only... The, the thing the thing that doesn't add up to me about this is Shelly Ann's never been one to duck people and well, certainly not the last couple of years. She hasn't ducked Thompson. They raced all the time in 2021 when Elaine was better than her. But last year, she ran 10.67 in this meet, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price. She was so consistent the entire year. So she, we've seen her be able to come out firing from the gun and just stay fit the whole season. I... The logical assumption here, Weldon, is that that's the situation that Fraser Price doesn't want to race Shakari, even though she's far more accomplished in her career. I mean, she's the goat of the 100 meters on the women's side, but I'm just kind of confused because that's what it seems like. But why would she want, why would she dodge her? Why not? I've got no problem with it. This is the greatest female sprinter in history. She's coming off one of the greatest seasons in history. She's willing to fly. Well, she didn't make it the first time because of family emergency. To fly to Botswana and now Kenya to help promote the sport. She can pick and choose who the hell she's racing. In a season opener, she doesn't have to give some upstart sideshow who's been talking shit about her for the last two and a half years and never producing the opportunity to take her down when she's getting her feet wet. So I've got no problem with this. Builds the drama, builds the drama, builds the drama. Hell, for me, you can wait till Worlds if you want. I No, ideally, I'd like to see it once early in the season, once in the middle, once at Worlds, maybe like, but, you know, it's like when you, it's like when you get intimate with someone. There's a reason why the lights are normally off. You don't know exactly what you're getting. Can you expand on that analogy? I'm a little confused there, Robert. Well, maybe the youngsters nowadays, I don't know. Like, you go into a studio like I'm in right now with lights everywhere and turn it on and, and, uh, no. Okay. No, but I I still am confused. (laughs) I, I don't get how that applies to what we're talking about. And the anticipation. As Weldon said, like, what's the best part about going to the casino? It's when you're in the parking lot. 
anticipation, anticipation. That's the fun part about the sport. And uh, I mean, it's so that fun. has anything. What does that have to do with having sex with the lights off? John, this is a terrible analogy. Let's just keep this show rolling. But, and as you point out, John, I was like, she doesn't want to get, I think losing to Shakiri, there's like national pride involved. I don't think Elaine Thompson and Shelly Ann, there's been tension between them, but I think it's a different type of tension with Shakiri. They don't want to get upstaged by her. They don't want to lose to her. Uh, well, Sharika Jackson just lost to her. But I, I think there's so, like a, little bit of a personal beef there or something but as you point out john i was shelly ann ran 10 6 7 into a headwind granted it was at altitude in her first race last year so she might be rearing to go in the first race but who knows but speaking of matchups guys did you guys see today did you guys get the email oh i did now i i post this this on the let's run message board and immediately people are like, this is never going to happen. These things always fizzle out. But as of now, at the Florence Diamond League on June 2nd, we've got Italy's finest, Marcel Jacobs, the Olympic champion, against Fred Curley, the world champion Olympic silver medalist. They had a beef. Curley said, he, it does look like this is not going to be a match race. Curley said, I don't want anyone else. I just want him. We've got Trayvon Bromel. I assume they will fill the other five lanes as well. But it is on the calendar, 24 days from today, Curly versus Jacobs. I didn't see that, and that's amazing. Now, it's in Florence, which is the Italian Diamond League. This makes sense for them to pay Curly. It should be a match race. That They need to get the other guys off those track. It would be much more dramatic if it's just the two of them. Now, the problem is one of them could pull out, and then you got to beg the guys. you got to beg five other guys to fill the lanes for Jacobs or whichever one pulls out. So it's kind of risky to hype the match race if one of them pulls out between now and then. But I, w- I would love to. I'm just excited for that. But it, yes or no, you guys think it would be better if it was just the two of them on the track? Maybe a little bit. I mean, that would turn it more into a spectacle than what we're used to, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, Yeah, I, I think that would be fun to see. What could be like, this is also technically the Rome Diamond League, I think. Are they refurbishing the stadium or something? Or... And the loser gets fed to the Lions, right? It could be like old school. I mean, how far do you want to take this, Robert? That's what they used to do in Rome, right? The the Sebco is just sitting at the side of the track, and he's got his thumb out, and we're waiting to see if he gives what, the thumbs up or thumbs down to the loser. What? Why was this considered like the advance of civilization if we were feeding people the Lions? Well, indoor plumbing, you know, roads. You win some, you lose some. There, well then. Okay then. I am curious about this showdown because Marcel Jacobs, what we've seen of him so far this year, he hasn't actually, he hasn't really been himself. He hasn't raced yet outdoors. Indoors, he was beaten at the Italian Championships and then he was beaten at European indoors. He did run a season's best of 6.50 in the final at Euros, which is a pretty solid time in the 60. But he got beat by fellow Italian Samuel Ceccarini. And hasn't gone yet outdoors. We know that Curly's in pretty good shape because he just won the 200 in Doha. So it's going to be interesting to see how fit Jacobs is. And hopefully he stays healthy and this thing happens because all the people on the message were saying someone's going to pull out, someone's going to get injured or something like that. Because remember, these guys were supposed to race 
three times before Worlds last year. And Jacobs, he got the food poisoning in Nairobi. And then the injury, he pulled out of pre-classic. And I believe the Rome Diamond League was the other one. So they're announcing this less than a month from the race. I'm hoping it comes together. But it wouldn't be the first time where we've seen someone announce a big matchup. You get some ticket sales and then it falls through. So let's hope this thing does happen. I'm giving the edge to Curly right now. Okay, Doha. We don't need to recap this whole meet. We already did that for our Supporters Club members, but let's give a one thumbs up from everybody and one thumbs down. Who is your big winners from Doha? We've already done Shakiri. Well, the obvious big winners here are Shakiri Richardson and Lamecha Gurma, who won the stacked 3K, but I wanted to shout out a couple of up-and-coming Ethiopians. Derube Welpeje, who was second behind Faith Kipyagon in the 1500. She ran her close until about 100 meters to go, and then there was a gap. But when Kipyagon went at the bell, she closed in 58-8. Welpeje was the only one who put up a real fight. And she's still only 20 years old. I was impressed by her. I was also impressed by Sembo Almehu, the runner-up in the steeplechase. She's only 18 years old, and she was right up there for quite a while as well and lost narrowly to the more experienced Winfred Yavi. So two young Ethiopian blossoming stars. She ran a big PB of 9.05 at 18 years old in the steeple. Uh... They were my kind of shout outs from that meet. To me, the biggest winners were us, the fans. I'm looking at this picture and let's run in our top of our Doha recap. Like, we talked about wanting to see great matchups. We had an amazing matchup in that men's 3000. Gurma, Aragawi, El Bukawi, Borega, Chariot. Are you kidding me? You basically had world champion of 1500, Olympic champions in the steeple in the 10. The guy that broke Coleman's record, and the guy that always beats Grant Fisher. Well, he doesn't always beat him. So that was just an amazing race. And in terms of the biggest losers, for me, I don't know if John asked for the biggest losers, but I'm handing him out. U.S. women's steeplechasing took a big hit. Val Constantine, Constantine, however you say her name, getting hurt. Emma Coburn falling and running, barely breaking 930. And then Grant Fisher. I mean, I, I, I love the boy. I, I want to make a shirt for him. My fish ER shirt. John kind of mocked it. I, I should show it to the youngsters to see how hip they think it is. But we just see how hard it is. Season opener, there's three guys that run faster than his American record. This is amazing because when you brought up Grant Fisher's name the first time, I was like, wow, Robert has made progress here. He's mentioned Grant Fisher, but he hasn't said this race was bad news for Grant Fisher. And then, no, no, you're still stuck in this stage. Your your biggest takeaway from the Doha Diamond League is that this was bad news for Grant Fisher. Some things never change. But maybe I should start using this as an illustrative way because I don't think that Grant Fisher's a bad runner. I think he may go down as the greatest or the best American distance runner in history, but we're caught up in whether you win a medal or not. And I just, 
the amount of competition that he's facing is to me the depth of it is unprecedented. Like, I get it. I know Kara Goucher won a global medal, but it's not the same. She's not facing. She wasn't facing this many people. Like it's just ridiculous how stacked these events are. Yeah, that's true. It's hard to win a medal, but I also think Grant Fisher is good enough to win a medal on his good day. He was very close last year in Eugene. Lost his balance in the 5K. If he doesn't do that, I think he medals in that race. Actually, I'll be glass half full. It was a winning day for Grant Fisher because he didn't race in this race. Like uh, People get mad at Jerry. If I was a coach, I would focus on the Worlds, getting a ride on the Worlds, and peaking it. These guys, they need a little bit more money. They've got to get ready for the Ethiopian trials, etc., like they race more often. I do think that's not optimal for their chances, maybe at the end of the year, but I think it's 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 great for the fans that we had this amazing matchup. Um, and one thing I want, I'm thinking about this a little bit more Timothy Chariot, the guy that used to, you know, own the 1500 last year, took a little bit of a step back, but you know. We debated on the post-reaction show whether this was a someone wanted to know if he was washed. To me, this was a very positive result. Seven thirty-six, like that time in and of itself is not amazing, but it's pretty good for a for a three thousand for a fifteen hundred for a speed-based fifteen hundred meter guy, right? I mean, what's Jake Whiteman's three thousand PB? Isn't that like actually? I thought he he might have ran faster last year indoors. Did he? Get down to 738, or is it still 750? He ran 737 indoors last year. So, Weidman's run 143.65 and 737. Whereas Chariot's a little bit faster than the 100, 143.11, and he's run 736. So, like, I just think that He's still got the tools to be very relevant and potentially beat Jakob Ingebrigtsen. I mean, Ingebrigtsen is not as fast as Whiteman or Chariot, but he's got better endurance. He's going to run in the 720s. But more important, the most important thing to me here was this was a guy that had an off year and he didn't just keep doing the same thing. He thought, no, I need to get stronger. I need to do this. And I was just really thinking after the after we finished our recap, like, can you imagine this is a guy that does not have a 3,000 PB. His 5,000 PB was like 1347.50. Can you imagine running the first 3,000 of your life and it's the Doha 3,000? That's like throwing my son who doesn't know how to swim right into the deep end and seeing how he does. And, you know, Chariot was paddling pretty well for a minute there. Then he had that one, he fell off and you're like, oh my God, he's going to go down. Lifeguard, we, we got on the, the lifeguards, got ready to jump in. And then he figured out a way to get to the, to the side pretty well. So, I just, I, I think I'm, I'm really excited for the 1500 this year as well. So the distance races are going to be great with all that talent. The 1500 is going to be amazing. It's going to be a great summer. I like that point, Robert, because I remember talking to Whiteman in the mix zone after his win last year, and he said specifically his run in Tokyo in 2020 when he ran poorly in the final, that showed him the 1500 had changed. He needed to be strong through the rounds, he needed to be strong enough to run a really fast race in the final. I mean, what Chariot has done that before. He front ran a 329 low in Doha when he won his gold in 2019, so it's not like he's not strong, but maybe he looked at this event and the way it's going and thought, I'm used to, you know, if he was ever going to not run the 1500, he would drop down to the, fifth, to the 8, and he ran 143. He's got great speed, but 
like you said, he might have think thought the same thing Whiteman thought after 2021 was I need to work on my endurance a little bit more. And if so, he's off to a good start. Can we stop wasting time that this was a great run for him in the 3K? It was fine. He's not going to win the world in the 1500. I'll say it right now. Just mark this down. May 9th, 2023. I think his best days are behind him. But we did spend a decent amount of time on the podcast. I mean, Gurma, for those who didn't see it, there's, what, four guys there at the bell, and he just sort of runs away from them in the backstretch, opens up a big lead with 200 to go, and essentially didn't lengthen it, sort of maintain that the way home. And bro, like, can this guy challenge steeplechase world record? I still think El Bacali's still probably the favorite to get the steeplechase world record, but that's a tremendous matchup to expect this year. Yeah, that'll be one to watch the whole year through. And just a quick update on the American steeple is Constein, who fell awkwardly, landed awkwardly on the second water jump and wound up dropping out. She said that she hyperextended her knee. She's hoping to return to running soon. Coburn, who fell early, she was taken out from the side by Jacqueline Chepkoich. She posted an Instagram update. She said, after falling, I spent... I just spent too much physical effort and emotional energy trying to catch up and had nothing left the last lap. Very, very frustrating way to start the season, but I know things can only go up from here. So we kind of had a debate on the podcast on Friday about how much the fall impacted her. She seems to suggest here that it had quite a big impact on her, not just physically, but mentally. We'll see her next time out. Yeah, with four days to think about it, John, you were pretty harsh about their performance, I felt. I was giving it the benefit of the doubt, but then with some thought, I was like, well, last year was a very inconsistent subpar year for her. Not the start she wanted, but I'm giving her a total pass because she fell. I, I was harsh, and seeing her comments, I think it took a, a bigger effort out of her mentally and physically than I thought at the time. I still don't think, I mean, 929, she was on the ground very, very briefly. Uh, she got up quickly. Now, I'm not saying it didn't, it, clearly it did have an effect on her. You know, it slowed her time down and, and she probably had to go a little harder too early and, and said that really came back to bite her at the end. I'm not denying that at all. But even with that said, you know, do we think this, did this race cost her 20 seconds? Did that fall? You really think it cost her all that time? I'm going off of what I saw from last year. I'm not sure. So I'm not totally writing it off, but I'm worried. Sorry. I'm not totally saying, oh, she's done, whatever. You know, it's one race, but I am still a little bit worried even after her explanation. Emma had a subpar race, but she was not the biggest loser in Doha. I think this one is easy. Michael Norman. In the men's 200 meters, last place, 20.65. Fred Curley wins it, 1992. He just sort of ran away from everybody the last 30. Kenny Bignar, 20.11. And Michael Norman's not even within a half a second of that. He stated he wants to run the 100 this year. He opened up in 10.02 with a big tailwind. Lots of question marks surrounding Michael Norman. 
yeah, that's the big takeaway for me is this is a huge question mark. We just don't, something seems to be up with him. I just don't know how someone as talented as Michael Norman can show up to a Diamond League 200 and run that badly if there isn't something else going on. So he, in the past, hasn't always been, he hasn't really want to talk about some of these struggles he's going through with injuries. I remember in 2019, clearly he was off in the 2019 World Championships as well when he went out in the semis after he ran 43-4 earlier in that year. I don't know if he's not 100% healthy. You would think if he think he'd be healthy, though. Why would you fly out from California to Doha to run this meet? So I don't know, but to me, there just seems, something, there seems to be something up. I, can't, I have no other explanation for why he ran so poorly. All right, enough Michael Norman talk. Can we talk about the track fest? I already mentioned Jonathan deserved a Monday morning off because he was up late in the night on Saturday watching this one. I woke up thinking, okay, how did Tui do? I see the headline. Joe said Andrews, 14.43, and Caitlin Tui, 1503, run fast. Connor Burns, 13.37, breaks high school record. And then I see the excerpt. Yerdy Goose won 800 and 146.30. My first reactions were, without even reading the article, were, okay, that's pretty good for Andrews. But as an operator of a news site, pseudo journalist, I'm like, eh, that headline's a little bit of fake news to me. Tui runs fast. I know it's a PR. I know it's faster than any woman, other woman, has ever run outdoors in NCAA competition, but my initial thought was Caitlin Tui disappoints in 1503. Am I wrong there, John? I think you are a little. I mean, we were thinking she would break 15 minutes, but she PR'd by 11 seconds. Like you said, this is the fastest time ever by a collegiate woman outdoors, so I think you can still say she ran fast. Did she run as fast as we thought she was capable of probably not. And she admitted afterwards, she said it had been a rough week for her. She said she wasn't feeling good training. She'd been a little overwhelmed. I think with, well, she said overwhelmed. I don't know if that meant with this being a pro meet because she's run against pros before, but she's flying all the way out to California just to run fast against a really tough field. She just had her finals at school. So not the easiest build up for her to go out there and she ran 1503 which means she got the outdoor record though Jenny Simpson has run 1501 indoors she missed sub 15 she missed the world standard of 1457 she did get the USA standard so it looks like she's going to run the 5k at USA so maybe she's thinking either she will take another run of the standard in between now and then or she'll just have to hope that the final goes fast enough at USA so that she'll be able to get it there if she's going to make the team. But right now we saw there's a big gap between some of the best female distance runners in the country and Caitlin Tui. Jose Andrews beat her by 20 seconds in this race. Okay, Jose Andrews might not be at the U.S. Championships in that event, but Emily Infeld ran 14.50. Solid race for her, for sure. Uh, I believe that's an outdoor personal best. Ellie Hennis was 14.54. They were also... A lot better than Tui. Tui was with them and hanging on the end of the lead pack for quite some time, but the last few laps, she just got tired and fell off. So 
yeah, making that team this summer, I was pretty optimistic after it indoors, I think. But then it's like, oh, wait, there are actually a lot of other very fast runners uh, in the United States right now. Yeah. And when I read the article, I felt much better about things because she said she felt terrible in the word overwhelmed. I was like, wow, was she overwhelmed from the pressure of the race? Or like, I think she might be trying to graduate this year, John. Maybe, um, you know, it reminded me of a college coach, like oftentimes conference meets the week of finals. It's like, it's very, there's a lot going on. So I'm like, the fact that she felt terrible means she was still able to gut out a 1503. So maybe she, you know, I was really hoping to see something in the 1440s. That's kind of the fitness we thought based on the times in cross country that they were capable of. Maybe that was a little bit misleading. But just to me, it's like, okay, this is a woman who, when she goes pro, I think will have a minimum. Like, assuming the wheels don't really come off in the next few weeks, I'm not wrong to say, right, that her guaranteed earnings would probably be at least $2 million. I'm thinking five years, $400,000 take you through the two next two Olympics. I mean, a minimum. I mean, that sounds the right ballpark. I mean, given that she's won all these NCAA titles, broken all these records, and she's still only 20 years old. 21 years. Sorry, just turned 21 in March. Uh, that's fairly, that's about what I would expect. Yeah. And I don't know. Do you have any insight over the last great? Well, I guess it wasn't the last great, but the Dartmouth alum. We had a couple years ago. We had someone that was winning everything in the NCAA. They went pro and got a ton of money. And I know Abby D'Agostino or Abby Cooper has made an Olympic team, but to me, it's like the sheer execs might have just burned that money. Like, was it really worth the millions of dollars? I mean, I guess no runner really moves the needle, but has Abby D'Agostino moved the needle as a pro on Let's Run? Maybe, maybe for the casual jogger she has and she fell down, she got the sportsmanship award and whatever. But for me, Abby D'Agostino's pro career has been, God, I hate to say it, almost a nothing burger. From just from the let's run, a truly elite standpoint. And I really want Caitlin Tui to to be in the likes of a Flanagan, a Molly Seidel, a Karen Goucher, uh, Emily Enfield, a Molly Huddle. Like you know, dreaming of knocking that door down. A Solinsky, a Tegan Camp, like either meddling or hoping to meddle. Yeah, obviously, Abby Cooper hasn't come close to that, but she did make two Worlds teams. Almost, almost. sorry, made one Worlds team, made an Olympic team, almost made a second Olympic team. She's been injured a bunch. But anyway, I would, yeah, I would expect Tui to get a lot more than Abby coming out of college because Tui not only has the records, which Abby didn't have at the collegiate level, she doesn't have the number of NCAA titles, but she could get there if she uses all of her eligibility. But she also has a massive social media following. You know, she's got about 100,000 people on Instagram. 100,000 followers on Instagram. She's been a star in U.S. running circles since her sophomore year of high school. And what do we always say is people love the high school phenoms. They draw massive eyeballs in this sport. That's why people were always caring about what Alan Webb did or Mary Kane did years after they weren't running fast anymore. Tui already has a massive fan base. So yeah, I think obviously the running part of it is keeping her relevant as well. But those two things combined, I think she would get a big deal. And one of the interesting things she said actually to David Monty in an article before the meet 
is that they he asked her about turning professional and when that might come, and she didn't say a hundred percent she'd be turning professional this year, but she did tell him that's definitely the goal. I haven't decided when yet, whether it's now or after the fall. So that's sort of the debate we've been having, Robert. I think you has uh, you have urged her to go pro after this spring season. I've said come back, try to go for the three P as a team and civil at NC State and go pro after the cross country season. Or am I, I misremembering here? I don't like college kids going pro early, so no, I didn't tell her to go pro in the spring, no. I think the fall gives you keeps you busy. So she's doing really well in college. This was an off race for her. Like 1503 is a bad race for Caitlin Tui. I still hope they she's going to get paid. I think she's great for the sport. Yes, she's a brand. Come back. Keep it going. Now, the problem is, and again, not that I experienced anything like Caitlin Tui, but at Cornell, we won eight straight Ivy League titles in a row. You, it gets to a point where it's no longer fun to win. You're trying not to lose. So I hope that she goes and is, is – it's a challenge to repeat in cross country instead of like, oh, I can only fail. Because, you know, we saw Jenny Simpson go back after a great track season. She went back for one cross country season thinking she could win it, and she was a disaster. So, anyways, any Abby Cooper fans on here? I love Abby. I was totally – I had actually had dinner with her and Coach Coogan and everybody when she was in college one year, one night. She was young, freshman, I think. But so much respect for her, particularly after all of this. In the last Olympic trials, when she went out and got that standard in that hot day, I mean, by herself before the hot final, so impressive. So I'm not saying she's not a great runner and a good competitor. Actually, that to me showed a lot like about her as Abby, the person, because I hadn't heard from her in a couple of years. She was hurt, I guess, or whatever, not running great. And I was like, does she really care about running? Is she really competitive? And in that in that race, you're like, yeah, she wanted to be great there and didn't quite make the team, but. Nowadays, you can't say anything negative about people without them jumping on your back. So I just want to get that out there. The one other thing I would say that excited me about Tui here is she said after the race, she's leaning towards the 1500 at NCAAs, which I think is a lot of fun because the 5K, I think she'd just show up and wipe the floor with everyone. Uh, it would be like we saw indoors. That's not saying 100% because... Abby D'Agostino did lose her final collegiate 5K after winning seven straight NCAA titles. But Tui, I think, is just on a lot of the level. There's no one else in the NCAA who's going to be running 1503. In the 1500, though, she'd be the favorite. She is the NCAA leader. But I don't think it's a... She's not clearly... She's not nearly as strong a favorite as she would be in the 5000. So I think that would be a fun challenge. I think a really fun challenge would be doing the the double because the finals are on the same day, a few hours apart. But if she's trying to peak in July to make that world's team, probably doesn't make sense to do that. So I can understand, but as long as she's doing the 1500, I am going to be ex- very excited to see that much more fun than doing the 5k and NCAAs. Super smart. They're not in it for the team title. So definitely do the 15. I guess she could try to qualify in the five, two. It's going to be in Austin, though. It's going to be hot as hell. Like, why put yourself through that? I see what you're saying, but I think it's fine. Definitely run the 1500. Okay. The shoe companies pay the big money for you to be 
like an American superstar. Not to be like Abby Diagostino Cooper, who sort of snuck an Olympic team. So Kaylin Tui's being evaluated on that standard. That's what her fans are hoping for. She's already too good for the NCAA level in some ways, right? I think the 1500 is great. It's more of a challenge. The 5K, she should probably wipe the floor. But in terms of being at that next level, trying to be a world star, this was a very disappointing run, right? I mean, there's just no way around it. But she's very young. This is her first chance at that. Other stuff's going on. Could she bounce back and still make the U.S. team this year? Yes. So disappointing for sure. I mean, right here on Instagram, tough race, but had a fun time in California with cool people. I mean, she got beat by Ellie Hennis by almost 10 seconds. But even looking at the 5K here, if if Josette Andrews runs to 15, which I don't think she should do. Well, I don't know. I think she should. The 5Ks, I mean, Josette Andrews, I think her easiest way to make the U.S. team is to run the 5K. She'll make it. The 15 is a little more variability. Best shot at a medal, still the 15, I think. It's this debate we have a lot. So, but could Caitlin Tui be running in the 1440s the next time out? I wouldn't rule it out. Oh, absolutely she could. Like you, like you said, this was a little bit of an off race for her. I wouldn't be shot by that at all. But I think there are a bunch of women who might be able to run in the 1440s. I mean, Ellie Hennis has been improving nicely. Uh, she's out in Flagstaff with Mike Smith now and seems to have taken to altitude pretty well. So I wouldn't be surprised if she does it. Emily Infeld made the team last year, just ran 1450. She could run in the 1440s. We know that Elise Cranny and Chris Schweizer can do that. They won in this race. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I want to talk about Andrews here, the winner of the race. She was absolutely sensational. 1443. It wasn't just that. It was the way she did it. They were supposed to have Alicia Monson pacing her for this thing. She gets COVID, can't do it. Then it was supposed to be Danny Jones. She was sick after the 800. She couldn't do it. It ends up being Michaela DeGenero and Whitney Morgan who split the pacing duties here. And then as soon as Morgan steps off, I thought she was racing because she'd been running so well earlier this year, but she steps off. Then Jose Andrews finds herself in the lead. She picks it up. She looks absolutely phenomenal. Starts going from 71s and 72s to a 70, then a 69. She slowed down for the third to last lap to 71, but then goes 68-3 and 64-4, her last two laps, closing in 212 to run 14-43, which is a big personal best. She's number seven all-time in the U.S. now. And she won this race convincingly by more than four seconds over Jocelyn Bray, the Venezuelan who set a South American record. Congrats to her. But I just looked at this and then her convincing win at the Penn Relays last weekend and I was like, wow, Jose Andrews, she's really fit. This move to Boulder has paid off. She's a threat to make the team in the 15 and the 5. Like This was just a great success for her from all angles. And I think she could have run under 1440 if uh, she had Monson taking her through 4K. It was a great result for her. Certainly not 
surprising though. I mean, this is a woman. Remember when she was part of the Reebok Boston Track Club, 2021, training under Chris Fox, 1451 before the trials. May 15th, heads to the Olympic trials. I think they were in warm conditions. She bombs it, runs 1548. Then a month after the trials, she runs 1451 again. Now, obviously, she's training at altitude. She's older. She's better. I don't think we're going to have any disasters. But, you know, it's interesting. Like, she didn't make the team then. We're like, oh, she should have run the 1500. Now we're all kind of. I mean, I, Chris Fox is not a dumb coach. There must have been a reason why he put her in the five. No, I, I look back on that race. I thought going in, I thought she was going to make the team. I thought the five was the right event for her with how well she was running. We knew she was a good miler. She ended up being a great miler. She was third in the Diamond League final that year. I think the conditions or something just got to her and she had a bad race. But I thought her chances were better to make it in the 5K than 15. I thought that was the smart choice. Now, though, and I think that that may still be the case in 2023. 20, her chances of making the team could be better in the 5K, but I think they're also very good in the 1500. And if I'm her, I'm running the 1500 at USA's because she's not going to medal in the 5K at Worlds. And Americans never medaled in that event. I don't think. I mean, 1443, it's good, but you've got to be like 14 teens, low 1420s to be a medal threat these days. I don't see it from Andrews this year. 1500? She could medal. Uh, she's already gotten third in the Diamond League final. She's run 359. I think she can run a second or two faster than that. And if you're running 356, 357, that could put you in the medal conversation. You know, you need... Obviously, Kipigon's pretty much untouchable. There's, it's not going to be easy, but I think she'd have a better ch chance of meddling in the 15 than the 5K So this year. So that's why I would go 15. Can we talk about jo Jocelyn Bray? This is a woman from Venezuela. Her PBs at the beginning of the year were 412 in the 1500 and 1521 in the 5,000. She had run the, won the World Duathlon Championships. In case you don't know what duathlon is, running and cycling. One of those the last two years. Now she's run 1447. I mean, John Greenstad, the number two time in South America. And all of South America is 1522. So the South American record from 1993 until 2023. How in the world is that possible? For 30 freaking years, no one from South America broke 1522 in the women's 5,000. That's not... That cannot just be a talent thing. A lot of that is like an environmental thing. Like a lot of those countries are struggling. Women don't have the money or the safety or whatever to go and train, I guess, or the cultural expectation because when we're seeing it here with this woman, that's crazy. Amazing. On both levels. That the record could be that slow for that long and that this woman could just in one year smash Caitlin Dewey. It is pretty crazy. She's 28 years old. I didn't know much about her, but from what I can tell, you know, she was the she's not just a duathlete, she was a two-time duathlon world champion. So, in 2021 and 2022, this year looks like she's putting more of her efforts into running and she started dropping her PBs significantly. She's not a good swimmer. I'm like, why in the hell isn't she winning the triathlon gold? I think she started out with triathlon. I saw some triathlon results, and then maybe she cut it back. She might not be a great swimmer because then she cut it back to duathlon, and now it's just running. 
I'm going to have to work on my Spanish here. I mean, she's legit from Venezuela. Like all of her Instagrams are in Spanish. I only say that because a lot of the people, you know, you see competing for these other countries are often maybe born there, but raised in the U.S. or immigrate to the U.S. Well, I also love her affiliation in this meet. It says L.A. Mambra, sorry, L.A. Mamba Negra. I don't know if it's supposed to be La Mambra Negra or just L.A. City, but Black Mamba translated into English. That's a pretty cool affiliation to have listed. Okay, can we talk about the result of it? <clears throat> the other thing that I was really into here. Yard Nagoose or Connor Burns? Please. Which do you think I think is more important? Yard Nagoose. Without a doubt. So, I see on the homepage that he runs 146.30 PR of almost two full seconds. And I remember thinking, okay, is that faster than Ingerbridson? And then I confirmed that it is. Ingerbridson's PR is 146.44. Another one of the great running storylines on the Let's Run.com podcast, Jakob Ingerbridson's 800 meter PB. But then I start reading the recap and talking about how Nagus was way back. And I'm like, what does this mean? Like, it sounds like it was more of a distance race. Like, where you come from way back? Like, what are they talking about? And before I describe it in detail, it might be best. Weldon, have you watched this race? No, I've not. Okay. I think, John, it's best for me to pull it up and let him watch the end because. I got a text on Sunday morning from a supporters club member, former Cornell legend. Well, legend in my mind, his mind, Ross McGowan. This guy is a 152.07 PR, I think. He texted me, another big step for the quote, Yared is going to win World's Fan Club this weekend. Just looking at his result from last night doesn't tell the story like the actual video. And then I wrote, is the video up? Because I didn't see a video of it anywhere. He said, no, but I bought the pay-per-view and watched it this morning. That's a diehard track fan, folks. He bought the pay-per-view. The of a meet he already knew the outcome <laughs> of. Love it. I didn't even do that. I just waited. I was going to have you, John, share my login or take a screenshot of the last 200 so I could watch it. Sorry, Jesse, but we gave Jesse more than $6 in free advertising, so I feel like John could share with me. Anyways, Jesse Williams has put the video up. I'm gonna, I was thought about making a page on Electro Run so you can watch the best of the sound running me. Should I show him, John, just the last 200 of the whole, whole race? Yes, kind of please show him the final 100 meters of this race, and your introduction has gone on fall too long. Okay, I have it here. I guess I need to commentate. About 100 to go. Nagus in fifth place. Isaiah Harris here in first. Battling with Lopez. Oh, Nagus coming up. Passes two guys. Oh, he's got him. Passes him about 20 meters before the finish. Gets the win. Wait, that's supposed to like be some Olympic defining moment? No. Sorry. Actually, I was more impressed before I saw that. I mean, maybe if I was watching the whole race and you had guys hadn't set it up because I knew he won. 
I'm sure with 200 to go, I thought he's out of it, not running that well. And then for him to win that, very impressive. I was very impressed he beat Isaiah Harris. I mean, I think Isaiah Harris can make the U.S. World's team at 800 meters. But Nagus, you know, more even splitting a 146. It's not shocking. The guy's very damn good. I mean, the way you think of it logically, if you can run 347 in the mile, obviously you can run 146, right? We, we kind of think that. We, I think we have predictions. Robert, when we made predictions on Friday, you were very close to getting his time. Did you pick 146.3? It was, it was something like that. I said 146.7. You might have been like 146.2 or something like that. I don't remember. Did, did, weren't we talking like 144s and 143s, hand him the gold medal? And I thought it was much more entertaining than that. I never like, said hand him the gold medal for anything. But Look, when I went and watched it, I mean, he comes like if you're watching the race live, you're thinking, no way this guy's going to win. I mean, there's two guys clear the field battling it out. And then you see Nagus just mow everyone down. And his last actually like 50 meters, he made like he ends up winning by like 10 meters. So, like, I was thinking, wow, a lot can happen in that last 30 meters. Like, at Worlds, man, if you're moving and they're not moving, you know, you can really make up a lot of ground. So, I see why my friend Ross was super impressed by it. But when I then I went back and watched it a couple other times, and I'm not as impressed because, I mean, I would like to go split by split. It really shows you just, like, the, the 800 is who's slowing down the least, man. Those those eight hundred guys, the speed guys, God, they must have been crawling the last one hundred. Or, or did Nagus actually like? I would love to see hundred meter splits for Nagus. Like, did he actually pick it up between seven hundred and eight hundred, which never happens in eight hundred? But to me, it's like he was basically just maxed out the whole way. Like he can't run that fast. Like, what was the split, John? Was it fifty two high, fifty three? Fifty two, eight three, fifty three, forty seven were his splits. Yeah, he's just basically running the same pace the whole damn way. He's not slowing down. So I don't know how much more is in the tank there. Like he's not going to be. I don't think. I mean, he did take these guys down and win it. And this is his first 800 in a number of years. But I don't think he's ever going to be a 143 guy like Timothy Chariot, like Jake Whiteman, like Alan Webb. He's more like the Ingebrigtsen mode. You know, really good endurance. Pretty good speed. Can he win? Well, he's, yeah, he's run seven twenty eight, which is phenomenal endurance. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I think the eight hundred. We just he hasn't run very many. His, this was his first one in four years. I was impressed by it. The thing, the most impressive thing to me is it just confirms Yard Goose, He's got the eye of the tiger. Some guys are just winners. They come into the close races. They get this stuff done. Look, a lot of this stuff has to do with fitness, obviously. If you have the best kick, you can blow everyone away. Robert's already shaking his head. This guy's won eight straight races. USA's last year. That was his last defeat. I think about his big races in college. 2019 NCAA 1500 title. He won that thing by a few thousandths of a second over Justine Kipritich. 2019 NCAA DMR over Stanford. He looks way back. Runs and runs down Grant Fisher, gets holds him off right at the end. I feel like when it's a close race, I just I like this guy a lot. So do you think I'm totally talking him out, out of my ass here, Robert? He's won some big races with some epic finishes. I hate the talk of oh, they're a winner, they're competitive. Unless it's one of my Cornell legends like Jimmy Weiner. But 
I mean, we hear not like when Noah Lyle says, Oh, I'm a winner. That's what I do. I'm like, okay, dude, you didn't win the damn Olympics. You're on your antidepressants and you're running like shit. So, but Nagus has won a lot of damn races and he's clearly competitive, but I don't know. He didn't win. He didn't win the 2021 NCAA cross country title. Okay, so what? I think the better example would be 2021 NCAA Outdoors when Cole Hawker beat him, and that was a pretty close race, and Hawker was stronger in the end. Like, actually, yeah, I don't want to. Actually, I want 2021 NCAA Cross Country made Mega against me. The Goose is such a winner that he tried to go out and run in the top ten of the NCAA Cross Country, and his body, and they said, "No way, dude." He's got spit off the bag. Yeah, I look. I do think. It's a little bit of disservice to everyone else in the sport to say, oh, this guy's a winner and these other people aren't. Like, a lot of people, the last hundred, everyone's going all out. But at the same time, he does have a habit of coming through in these close races. And I just think with a hundred to go, something shifts. It's like we see it sometimes with Woody Kincaid in some of these races as well. They can summon something extra. So I, from that perspective, be, be, beating Isaiah Harris and Tonatiel Lopez, who would Two top 800 guys. That's really what made me say, hey, wow, this is good. And hey, he beat the guy who was fourth at Worlds in the 1500 last year, his teammate Mario Garcia Romo. So winning the race to me was more impressive than the time. And did you notice who wasn't in this race, John? There are everyone on earth apart from six people. I don't know, Robert. Cole Hawker? Holy whore. Okay. I just said, if you're one of the OAC teammates, would you ever want to work out with the goose again? You get beat every day in practice and you realize, I've never beaten that guy. It's like the Ingebrigtsen older brothers. They realize, holy shit, we're never beating you, this kid. We're never going to win a gold medal. And uh, whore's only got a 149 PB. That's his flaw in the 800. Oh, my God. And Holy whore doesn't they, race the 800 either. I know. He doesn't race the under because he doesn't have the speed. So they didn't put him in here because they knew he would get beat. I assume they put this race. I saw Garcia Romo, the teammate. He congratulated Nagus afterwards. But I think he was a little bit surprised. He was ahead of Nagus the whole way. I think he and maybe the coaches probably thought, well, Garcia Romo's a little bit faster. He's going to beat him in this 800. He didn't. So it's over. Your Nagus will never lose another race in the 1500 to any of these OAC teammates. If you're in the OAC, Garcia Romo, Mario, or Ali, I'll coach you. I will, I'll try not to point out the obvious. You're not as good as the Nagus, but I'll coach you up so you don't have to get your head beat in and practice every day. We're going to ask some altitude tents here in Baltimore. All and right. It'll be good. Robert, I agree. Yard Nagus, amazing, fantastic runner. He's in really good shape. I think he can do some big things in the sport. I think you're forgetting what Ollie Hoare accomplished last year because he bombed at the Worlds and didn't make the final. He won the Commonwealth Games in 330 against a stacked field. That's faster than Yard Nagus has ever run. He ran 347 in the mile. Like on the Diamond League, he was consistently number two or number three behind Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He's a fantastic runner to just come in and immediately say he will never beat Yard Nagus in 1500 again, I think is a bit disrespectful. John, it's not about being a good runner. It's like, it's like on these sports shows, it's all about who's got the rings, who's got the gold. Who's got the rings? Ollie Hoare has a gold medal from the Commonwealth Games. Yard Nagus has never run a step at a global championship. Right now, Yard Nagus doesn't have a, the pro level. He's won an NCAA title. The pro level, he's still looking for that. Granted, he's very young, but I just think 
he's really good. He's top of his game right now. Let's not get too carried away because everyone, you know, has. Do I think he has a super bright future? Absolutely. But everyone has their hot streaks. And when everything's clicking right, then someone gets an injury or something. We've seen it happen to Nagus, USA's the last two years. Oh, sorry, USA's 2022, Olympics 2021. He got hurt. So pump the brakes a little, but this was a great weekend for Yara Nagus. Very encouraging result. I'm very excited to see what he does. Hopefully his next time is a Diamond League race. I know Oli Hoare is going to that Oslo race where Ingebrigtsen might be trying to get a world record, I think. So if Nagus gets in there, that's going to be fine because it's going to be a fast race. We're going to have a stacked field. That should be good stuff. Should we turn to Connor Burns now? I think we should give him a shout out. Now, if you watch this race, which you guys didn't, he wasn't on camera a whole lot. They kind of there was this Belgian guy who won the race and they focused the camera on him. That was the one the one thing I would say was a floor of this meet. I thought the commentary was pretty good with Jeff Merrill and Shannon Robery, but sometimes the camera would just be fun. You wouldn't have those wide shots and get a better perspective of the race. So you wouldn't see someone who was coming on until very late. And in this case, they did a great job of saying Connor Burns has broken the high school record, what a big run this is. But it was hard for us to tell exactly what was going on because he wasn't on screen for a lot of the race. So 1337.30 is what Burns ran. Dylan Rupp's record was 1337.91. So he just got under. It stood since 2004. And one of my takeaways is, okay, the super shoes clearly help, right? A lot of these high school records and stuff, I'm looking, okay, this is not something that Galen Rupp or anyone in the mid-2000s had access to. We already know that. But at the same time, Galen Rupp was kind of a professional by his senior year in high school. He was being coached by Alberto Salazar, who was a pro coach. He did this whole post-graduation like European tour in the summer of 2004. He set his high school record in, on July 31st, 2004. So that's probably about two months after he graduated. And he was running these pro races. Now, obviously, this is a pro race as well for Connor Burns. But just a little context for both of them. Super impressive run, though, especially because Burns, he was going after that high school record in the indoor mile multiple times this year. Didn't get it. He ran sub four. He ran sub four last year as a junior, if you remember. But at Arcadia a few weeks ago, he ran 841 and 3200, which is a good time, but he was only fourth in that race. He goes up to Mount Sac, and he runs 843, 3200 pace for five kilometers. So fantastic run by him. Great job to get under the record. And he says he's going for Alan Webb's outdoor mile record on June 1st in St. Louis, the legendary 353. So it's going to be some hype around that. At the time, I threw shade on Rupp's race because back then other high schoolers were going during the summer. They weren't doing pro races. Now I don't care. Birds is doing the same thing. It actually bothers me. A lot of these kids aren't even doing their high school seasons anymore. He's, what, 18 years and five months old. Rupp was like 18 years and two months old. It's very similar. So great run for him. I actually, when I saw this, I was like, wow. He said, I've never felt that good. It's amazing to me. He almost hit his two-mile PR and kept going for another mile. So, you know, reminds me of Weldon once ran a 10K, hit the 3K faster than his 3K PB and kept going. So what a let. You are Weldon. 
well, you're fit, you're fit, and you're feeling good, you're feeling good, you can just do it. Like, so I was like, well, he had an A plus day. You know, Caitlin Tui didn't have that. She had like a C plus day. So good stuff by Connor. Head of the University of Oregon next year, where he'll be coached by Jerry Schumacher, who also coached the winner of the A Heat of the Men's 5000. Cooper tier. 13-12, comes from behind. I saw a clip on sound running, and I wanted to confirm this. He put his arms out and was celebrating. Jerry apparently told him to focus on the win. He did win, but I'm like, wait, do we really celebrate winning this race? But to hold, I just watched the replay while you were talking, John, a few minutes ago. and To hold off Morgan Beetleskin, I mean, Morgan Beetleskin has got really good mile speed, so to hold him off, I mean, I Cooper Tier is great mile speed, too, is good for Tier. But when I was watching that, I was like, man, Tier's pretty big. Big dude. Up, oh, can't talk about body types. I apologize if I triggered you. I apologize if I triggered you. But I was just like, is that more of a, he's got, well, I was going to say, I was going to say his body kind of reminds me of Ingebrigtsen. Is that more of a 1500 body? But then I'm contradicting myself because I think Jacob Ingebrigtsen is absolutely unbeatable in the men's 5000. So I don't know what event he should run. Um, at USA's, I think I'd like to see him try the 1500 one more time, unless the double is doable. The double is doable, and I think he will run the 1500, and I think he should run the 1500 because I think he's one of the three best milers in America right now. And I'm not, I'm still not sure about that in the 50 in the 5k, he could be, but I have no issue with him celebrating. This is a good race for Kubatia. He his job was to go out and get the win, he got the win, he did get. People saying, oh, he got dropped by Athenas Kiyoko. Well, he said after the race, you know, I've raced this guy before. I just didn't think he could hang. Like, he raced him in the NCAA 5K and beat him there. And this one, he didn't, he got gapped, but he was keeping an eye on it. And then Kiyoko began fading. Tier took over and 54 8, 2, last lap, held off a good closer in Beetlescombe. He's back home in Southern California, which is where he's from. He was pointing to the crowd. I, I love the celebrations. Like, make track fun. Okay. Kubatia knows this isn't the U.S. Championships or the Olympics, but I had no issue with athletes celebrating a win. I thought it was good. Solid result for Kubatia. And, I, you know, you look at it a few years ago, he runs 13-12 in the NCAA final, and you're just like, oh, my God, that's so fast. Like, like, you know, now it's just like 13-12. That's kind of what I expect from Kupatir. I think he's at that level where you can run 13-12 and just think, oh, wow, he probably could have gone faster if this was, you know, a really paced race or if he was in, like, really amazing shape. So, solid day at the office for Kupatir. Of course you should celebrate. But I, th- I think the 13-12, John, this isn't the college ranks. This is the pro ranks. It's just It's just one step. In, in the direction. It's a good thing he won the race, but 13-12 doesn't really move the needle. I'm glad he won the race. But like Caitlin Tui, she's got a long way to go. Cooper Tier's got a long way to go in the 5,000 meters. So I think that's why we're all saying it probably makes more sense to run the 1,500 this year. Well, yeah, in the 5K, I don't think he's beating Grant Fisher, and he's probably not beating Woody Kincaid. So I think it would be between him and Abdelhamid Noor or maybe Paul Chalimo, but Paul Chalimo, I'm not sure what he's what shape he's going to be in for the 5K this year. Whereas the 1500, Yara Nagus obviously is going to be on the team, but 
Are you taking anyone else over Cooper Tier? I would probably take a healthy Cole Hawker, but Cole Hawker hasn't raced at all. And we're now into the second week of May. So well, I guess he ran that one race indoors and then he got hurt. But I would say Tia's chances are probably second best in the 1500 to make the team. Sorry, second best to be clear. There is only one person with a better shot at making the 1500 team with him, than him, and that's Yard Goose. Correct. And I guess while we're talking about B races, Matthew Centrowitz, just kudos to him, man, saying I need to be in the B race, the Olympic champion, 340. I'm writing him off for this year's teams, John. And I'm not sure he can make it next year, but I like the big focus. I hope that's his swan song. I'd love to see him make the team next year. But I'm not sure how much downtime he can have this year in the offseason. He needs to sort of raise the bar as much as he can this year. I mean, who knows? Watch, watch him make the team this year, and I'll be eating crow. But he seems very invested in this. I think it's a, it's a challenge. All the greats love a challenge. And the challenge used to be meddling or whatever. I mean, hell, Nick Willis got a medal in 2016. Past his prime. Yeah, he was 33, which is the age Centro is right now. But I tend to agree with you. I'm I'm big in the trust Matthew Centrowitz camp. Don't worry too much about early season results. But then I'm seeing all the stuff he's saying. He's had a story in the LA Times before this meet. And even he is sort of come back and said, yeah, 2023 might not be my year I'm doing this for 2024. I think his chances of making the team in the 1500 are better next year than they are right now. Sorry, than they are for 2023. I also think he could make the team next year. If he can just long, healthy, consistent training from now until the 2024 Olympic trials, I think he has a good shot to be on that team. It's just that's something that's been a struggle for him. And... We also do know, though, Matthew Centrowitz, he does get fit very quickly. He'll, he'll have these periods of racing where he's not running that fast, not running their impressive times, and he'll just have this one race. You're like, oh, Centro's back. He shows up. He knows how to get it done at USA's. So I think it's becoming less and less likely that he does it this year, but who knows? If you have just one, one race where it clicks, maybe, maybe he can. Yeah, John, I've always seen him in the past it's like the light switch comes on, he's healthy, and he's so talented, he just gets in shape. But what's been weird about this is, I mean, in December, last into last year, he was like, I'm only focused on 2024. And I'm thinking, dude, you're running like 403 in the mile now. Of course you can be in like 350 shape by the time June comes around. But he like took a step back or just he just plateaued for so long, it was unusual. But the good news is he has been healthy enough for six months basically to be racing. I mean, December through now. Like, I don't know if he's missed some time, but he's keeps showing up, keeps showing up. And it's kind of unusual that he hasn't turned the light on. But I think it's good. You you would think maybe maybe it's just gonna take maybe because he hasn't had he's been out for a while in the past, like last couple of years haven't been great. Like, I agree with you. Give him another either the fire's totally out or eventually we're gonna kick it into gear here and see what happens. But why I agree with Weldon, you don't take a break. Like the thing is, like even Let's say he doesn't, it's unlikely to make the U.S. team. I would still run a, a European season as much as I could. But then what does he do in the fall? There's nothing to motivate him. There's no cross country. There's nothing to What do you mean on. there's nothing to motivate him? There's the Olympic Games. That is clearly the thing that is keeping him in the sport. He wants to make another Olympic team. Like, 
What does he do in the fall? He does what every pro runner does in the fall. You do base training or whatever. He doesn't need a freaking cross-country season. I know, but you need structure normally. Like, I mean, this guy seems more disciplined than his dad was. Like, oh, his dad had an American record. But, like, where does he live now? He, like, lives by himself in, like, Utah or something? Or Well, he's engaged. I assume, you know, I assume he lives with his fiance or... Yeah, he bought a house in Utah. But right, I'm sure Matthew Sensuitz, who has multiple medals on the global stage and has been a professional runner for more than a decade, will figure out what to do with his full season to prepare for the Olympic Games. I don't think that's going to be much of an issue for him, Robert. One last comment, just unrelated to this. You took a dig at Rupp for the pro season. And... I also had heard that back in the day, he was like, you know, he wasn't paying for all that travel. I don't know who pays for the travel now. And then he was going to be ineligible at the University of Oregon. So they just acted like he paid for all of it, which never actually really happened. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I was told. But anyways, we didn't ding him for the right thing. Uh, we know for a fact he was on testosterone medication in high school. So just putting that for the record, we have documentation from the Nike lab that Galen Rupp was on. Salazar claims it was called Testo Boost, which is legal, but that's just for the record. He's on a legal supplement? Okay. Some think it's legal. Some wonder. Testo Boost is legal. We don't know that he was on Testo Boost. Well, the written, the written thing didn't say Testo Boost. It said testosterone medication. Right. Okay. Thank you for bringing that. Duly noted. Uh, a couple other things from the track fest here. Steeplechases, quite surprising, both on the men's and women's side. Start with the women. I thought going in, I look at this field, Courtney Wayman's PB is about 10 seconds better than everyone else. Like, all right, she made the world final last year. She made the U.S. team. She ran 9.09. So this is going to be a very easy steeple debut for her in 2023. Not so. She looked like she was on the way to a comfortable victory. Wayman had a lead of a few seconds towards the end of the race. But then Chrissy Gear, the former NCAA mile runner-up from the University of Arkansas, now a pro with Hoka NAZ Elite, she ran her down. She passed her in the home straight and dropped her like a bad habit. Big PB, 15-second PB for Chrissy Gear of 923.55. Way minute second in 924. And I think the US Steeple scene just got a little bit more interesting. I expect... Wayman will get faster throughout the rest of the season. This is actually a faster opener than she had last year. But I think Chrissy Gear could as well. The way she closed this, she ran 60 seconds, 67 seconds for her last lap. I don't think the women's steeple is a three-horse race anymore in the U.S. Am I overreacting based on one result in which Chrissy Gear ran 923, which probably won't get her on the team at USA's if she runs that fast? Slight overreaction. But it's very good performance, John. I mean, she beat Courtney Wayman. She's new to this event. Well, she's not totally new. She won I mean, this event at SECs in college in 2021. Well, she never ran at NCAAs, right? She ran at NCAAs in 2019, but did not make the final. But towards the end of her career, yes, she was mostly in the 1500. She was fourth at NCAAs last year as a senior in the 15. I think it's a s smart move for her to move to this event. I don't think she's going to be a sub four fifteen hundred meter runner. So I thought I noticed a couple Hoka and AZ elite performances here. 
think it's smart for her to move to this event. I mean, it's just such a fine line, right? Like the on groups been having a little more success. Well, they got the NCAA champions. The Hoka group sort of have an NCAA champ. They're generally starting with like the Roland well, Hacker 2022 NCAA champion. Oh, that's true. They usually have like the runner up, the second place guy. Um, oh yeah, Adrian. Uh, can I say his name? Field shoot. Is that right, John? It's pretty good. Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah, he won the 10k. I don't like running this 10k. There just wasn't any depth. But 27, 23, essentially by himself. That's a good. Yeah, run. that was a great run. So it was a good run here, and then on the men's side. There's no way I knew this name. Kenneth Rooks, who I think was like sixth last year at NCAAs, runs 8.17.62, wins by three seconds. Jordy Beamish with improving in the, going in the right direction with, with the steeple, 8.20.62. And Hillary Bohr, the three-time straight U.S. champion or two-time straight U.S. champion, Three straight. Third, 820.67. So, I mean, huge win for Kenneth Rooks. 817, you're in, the, you're in the conversation. Absolutely. And Rooks, I do remember the name because as a true freshman at BYU back in 2019, he ran 836. He made the NCAA final. That's not, you know, 836 won't make you competitive at the top of the US level, but for a true freshman, that's very fast. Then last year he comes back. He you know he served his mission. Well, then he comes back in twenty twenty two. That was before his mission, John. Yeah, he ran as a true freshman. Ran eight thirty six. Then went on his mission. Then came back and ran eight twenty two last year. So clearly talented kid. Ed Eystone has coached some good steeplechases in his years, but not as fast in the college level as Kenneth Rooks, because this was the number two time by a collegian in NCAA history behind only the great Henry Rono. And it broke BYU's school record, which had stood since 1977 to legendary U.S. steepler Henry Marsh. So Henry Marsh, by the way, if you aren't familiar with him, he won the U.S. championship nine times. So, even one more than Evan Jager. Yeah, so this was a great run for him. Beating the US champion, doing it by running fast. He's certainly a contender, but I'm also not going to, I'm not going to say, oh, he's, he's on the team now because he might not even be the best guy in the NCAA. If you guys remember last year, we had two guys who were coming back this year run 818 in the NCAA final. That'd be Duncan Hamilton of Montana State and Parker Stokes of Georgetown. So those guys are both American. They could be in the mix as well. We've got an influx of young guys in the U.S. steeple ranks, and then you've got the old guard, Hillary Bohr and Evan Jager, still looking to hang on. So this will be an intriguing event to follow over the next two months. Real quick programming note. The Young Brothers and Aaron Salmon skipped this meet for their high school prom. Good for them. They were I know this was a great opportunity to run fast, but they've also run fast in all these other meets. There will be other days. You will not get a chance to go to your senior prom again in high school. So happy for them. Hope they had a yeah, good totally time. Yeah, t- I 
I totally think that's the right move. Oh, some message board posters like, didn't Marty let Corey skip his prom to go sub four? Well, that's a different deal. Yeah, if you're being like the second high schooler ever to do something, it's a completely different deal. Although, I guess you could have gotten the 5K record, but I totally agree. There's they other made... meets. Yeah. There are other meets. Maybe Marty or Corey couldn't get a date to the prom. Who knows what the true story was there, John? I was going to ask, isn't high school? I'm all for kids being normal high schoolers, and I encourage it. When my son, when I'm coaching Walden's daughter to Phenoms, I'm going to have her be a normal high schooler. But isn't like the high school prom the most overrated thing ever? Does anyone remember their high school prom? Now, maybe it was because I wasn't super social and going there with like some supermodel. If I did, I don't remember. Not that a woman is judged by her looks. I mean, some super personality is what I meant. I, I didn't go with a memorable person if I even went. I don't remember. Wait, do we have you, a prom, Weldon? Can you remember the name of your high school prom date, Robert? You don't need to say her name, but can you remember it? This is going to date me, though. Oh, it sounds Hillary, like no. Hillary Clinton. All right, don't, don't be ridiculous. Would have been Hillary, Hillary Rodham back there in any way. Uh, wait, no, Weldon, can you remember I, the name of your high school prom date? I can't remember what she looks like, I think. There's a picture of some girl. I had so asked Weldon. No idea for, for Robert. Weldon was scared to call her up, so I had to ask her for him. Oh, shut up. I have two he, ideas. I have two. Wait, is this true, Robert? No, no, no. He begged you one people. time to call a girl out for him, act like I was him. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I, I'm pretty sure I, whoever I took to the prom. I have two people in mind. So maybe there's like a junior thing and then a senior thing. But yeah, it was the whole thing for me was stressful, man. I don't know about you guys. I had a great time at my high school prom. I mean, maybe it's just because I was very, I had a very good close set of friends. We all got the limo together and the picture. Yeah, you took all the pictures and stuff, but it was a fun time. We were all going with fun people. We, okay. What's your date up to now, John? Um, We don't need to talk about that. I remember my date's name. We had a good time. I'd rather not spend too many times on specifics, but. It was a really fun night. The whole the whole class just felt like unified. We, you know, the song "Here I Go Again" by White Snake that came on the end, and it's just a feeling. The whole dance floor, everyone was just like, I, you know, you got the jocks and you got the nerds, and you got the cross country kids, but just felt like everyone was there to have a good time. And we did, so I have positive memories of my high school senior prom. There you have it, folks. There's why Massachusetts has the most expensive houses in the country because the public school. Now, John, the way you described that, the jocks and the nerds in the cross country was the cross country team the bridge between the jocks and the nerds? <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking of the different social groups. I mean, which group were you in of the, of the two? Or... I mean, I was certainly closer to the nerds because I was in the like honors classes. But why? I... Why are cross country runners considered jocks, John? Well, I. I won the award for top senior athlete at my high school, so I don't know. Maybe if you asked the right person, they did consider me a jock, but <laughs> all right. Well, wait, Enough reminiscing about... about my glory days. I would like to mention one name here. Since John Kellogg is remotely helping coach a team in California that's going to be winning the state title soon with a bunch of nerds because the coaching is so good. Remember this name, folks. Remember you heard it from me. Evan Noonan. 
This kid is a sophomore in high school in California, Dana Hills. This weekend he ran a 414. 1600 with a 55 last lap. That's ridiculous. That's that's really impressive. 55 seconds as a high school sophomore. That's great. Yeah. Now he's already run fast. He's already run 409 and 906. But when I heard them talking about this 55, I was like, what? In this meet? No, in this sectional meet that he was in. So it was interesting talking to them because John Kellogg thought he was a junior, whereas the guy that John coaches the team that actually coaches the team on the ground knew he was a sophomore. And the guy, they're like, oh, if he's a sophomore, he's definitely going to break four next year because a sophomore is going to improve more than a junior would. John thought he was a junior. He's like, oh, he probably will, maybe, maybe will do it. But now that they know he's that young, that he's going to do it. Okay, guys. Before we get to Adidas City's games and Jesse Williams, I just got an alert on my phone, and it reminded me of a topic we need to talk about. Lance Blanks. Does that name ring a bell to you, John, at all? No. He was one of my sports heroes growing up, and I just see this. It's an ESPN word, remembering the man, my father, Lance Blanks. He was a University of Texas basketball player. BMW. Blanks, Mays, and Wright. I mean, I just was really into this. Took his own life at age 56. He was also the Phoenix Suns general manager at one point. And his daughter's paying tribute to him. I mean, I guess this happened May 3rd. And I think the day after we recorded the podcast last week, Tori Bowie the 2017 world champion, 100 meters, 2016, three-time Olympic medalist in 2016. She died. I don't think we have a cause of death yet, but many people are, she had some mental health issues. Many people are speculating suicide. I mean, just both these things. Life is so precious. It's so sad. If you're struggling out there, you can get help. Nine, You can dial 988 on your phone in the United States. I'll put a link to the show notes, 988lifeline.org. But Tori Bowie, I didn't know Tori at all. You know, I think this is more of a distance running website. Even with 100 meters, there's more focus on the men's, but it's just so sad. I was glad to see these tributes coming out to her. Like the Guardian had a video tribute to her. A lot of nice stuff on Instagram. Definitely a sad story because she had one of the coolest stories in track and field in terms of her rise. She did sprint in college a little bit, but she's better known as a long jumper at Southern Miss. She was the NCAA champion in 2011. She's jumping and doing some sprinting. And then the 2014 pre-classic, she shows up as a lane filler. She gets lane one. How many Diamond League races do you see one out of lane one? Almost none. But Tori Bowie shows up. She beats two reigning Olympic champions in Shelly Ann Fraser-Price and Allison Felix in winning the 200 at pre from lane one. She also long jumped in that meet. Then suddenly people are like, wow, she can really sprint. She becomes a US champion. Then 2017, the only world title recently that Shelly Ann Fraser-Price hasn't won because she was pregnant that year, Tori Bowie is the world champion in 2017. Great race against Marie-Jose Talu. Bowie was behind, but ran her down, out-leaned her. Talu didn't lean. 
terrific, awesome race and just a really cool story and rise in the sport. And then could kind of things after that, things did not go her way. She had a big injury in 2018 pre-classic that sidelined her the rest of the year. There was an altercation with Sean Miller Weibo at their training camp in Florida, which ultimately resulted in Bowie leaving the group. And from there, she seemed kind of rudderless. She tried to go to California. There was a dispute about some of the costs associated with her stay at the Olympic Training Center. She switches to the long jump in 2019. And then she got fourth in the Worlds in 2019 in the long jump. But then that was sort of the last anyone heard of her from these big-time meets. Still only 32 years old. So just really sad that she's gone. But she suddenly left her mark on the sport. The other thing I think it shows is just there's not a lot of support system in her sport. I mean, all these athletes are technically independent contractors. You know, Clayton Murphy, we were talking to him earlier on the podcast. He loses his health insurance because he's no longer ranked whatever in the world. So, I mean, you could be at top of the world 2017, doing pretty well in the long jump in 2019, despite some struggles, and then completely forgotten, totally on your own, you know, emotionally, probably financially. I don't know what the solution is, but I think the sport needs to try to do better. Or maybe society. Maybe it's not, you know, the sport, but there's a lot of people suffering out there and want to try to help as many of them as possible. Yeah, society, from a mental health perspective, you want to make sure that the people who need it are getting it. Uh, but also coming out, like when you were exiting the sport as a professional athlete, a lot of the times it's a prolonged exit. You might be hanging around and still training a little bit, but now you're not competing at the meets you used to be competing at. You're not getting the same sort of money from your sponsor. If you even have a sponsor anymore at the end of your career. And it's not always an easy transition to make. And then you've got to go from realizing, okay, I'm in my mid-30s. I've made Tori Bowie's a world champion Olympic silver medalist, probably made a nice chunk of change. But a lot of times, even for athletes at that level, it might not be enough to live off for the rest of your career. So you've got to figure out what are you going to do, what are your next steps. So facilitating that transition, yeah, it can be tough. And that's where your support system becomes valuable. And yeah, maybe that is something that either World Athletics or USATF would look into doing if they don't already is having a course for athletes who are sort of transitioning out or some sort of resources available to them to just kind of give them an understanding of what to expect, what sort of steps they should be taking. Okay. On a more positive front, the Adidas Atlanta city games were this weekend. This was an event held with Adidas in conjunction with the Atlanta track club. This thing had some amazing visuals, visuals. Was it night? Well, it went on forever. I'm not sure why that that was happening, but the main portion of the meet it was dark out, which looked cool. They had drone shots, the, the Olympic rings in the background. I'm sure Adidas, which is an Olympic sponsor, loved that. It's held at the Centennial Park in Atlanta. They had a track. 
it looks like a lot of people there. But that's the beauty of these street meets, I think. I think you don't have to have that many people there to actually make it look really cool. But for what it was, a lot of people and a tremendous matchup with the marquee being Noah Lyles versus Arian Knighton versus Omanyala in the 150 meters. And as we, as I think we all predicted, Noah Lyles gets the win convincingly. So do you guys put any stock in this performance? What do you think of the event? Replace the old, I think it was Adidas Boston games, John. Yeah, the Adidas Boost Boston games, which I don't think, I mean, I was always, I was at that event usually in person. So it's harder to get the visuals from what that you would on a broadcast. But I, I agree with you. I thought the meet looked very cool, especially with the Ferris wheel lit up there in the background in Centennial Park. I do put some stock in this race. I'm, I'm really glad it happened. All the time we see these meets where they'll keep the top athletes apart when they have con- and didn't happen this time. Lyles faced Knighton and Lyles was the convincing winner. And I thought he would win going in, but I didn't think it would be this convincing. It was so evident how strong Noah Lyles is and how well he's able to maintain his top speed because he was out behind Knighton and Omanyala, but then the last 50 meters, it was no contest. He separated, he won 1456 to Knighton's 1485, 1489 for Omanyala. I do think, I mean, it shows what I already knew that Noah Lyles is really good at holding his speed, but I'm curious, Robert, one, it's a street meet. Now, the times are pretty fast. This track looked to be pretty fast for the athletes. The hurdles was one in 1301 for Grant Holloway. Oblique Seville ran 999 in the 100. Does this change your mind at all about Noah Lyles' potential in the 100, Robert? Or are you sticking with your opinion that he should bag it? Doesn't change my opinion. Think he should bag it. Well, no. Again, from a coaching standpoint, if he wants to do it, you can let him do it. Does he have a bio to worlds, John? He does, right? In the 200, yes, he does. So you let the athlete do it. In this case, it's not going to mess him up, but he's not going to do anything in the 100 meters. He's not going to win the world, t- I mean, anything, but it's kind of a win or nothing society. I was just watching the replay where you guys were talking about it. I stopped the clock at 9.8 seconds. And he's behind Amanyala. So I was impressed by Lyles in this. That being said, I was impressed by Lyles in this race. The dominant victory. What does this convert to for 200? I mean, like, seemed good. I was also impressed by Amanyala. Like, I thought he, he, I don't know, I thought he was a pure 100-meter guy, and he did pretty good. He barely got beat by Knight in, in 150. But it just shows you. Why Knighton's, well, excuse me, why Lyles is so good at the 200. Why Owen Yaw is good at the 100. And Knighton's pretty damn good at the 200, too. But very impressive by Noah Lyles. And I, I thought the visuals were cool. I didn't watch the whole thing, but the fireworks going off at the end was neat. My only drawback is, and you guys are going to talk to Jesse Williams soon about how to promote the sport. I mean, Adidas must have spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on this event. Like, but they didn't, what they didn't do is get this on national TV. So the live stream was like 
peak on YouTube with 6,000 viewers? Like, why doesn't YouTube let you pay? Like, couldn't they pay YouTube like 200 grand or something or $100,000 or $50,000 to promote it right on the spot? Make people watch it. Like, you're spending all this money on the van. Aren't you trying to get eyeballs? It just seems weird that they wouldn't have got a TV partner. But good event, good race here. The live viewing numbers to me were shockingly poor. I mean, this was something Michael Johnson was tweeting about. I was just on YouTube Live and like some random political show that I'd never heard of had, I think, 20,000 views. But 6,000 people, now granted it's the middle of the night in Europe, but just Google YouTube.com live and see what you see beating that. Like, clearly the sport on its own isn't that popular. And maybe right. that's the thing. Maybe that's why they have these street meets because you can't get a lot of fans and you get a few thousand people out. It looks really packed because the, the history of this meet goes back to the Diamond League meet in New York City. That's what the Global Athletics used to put on, which was sponsored by Adidas, if I remember correctly. People didn't turn out in Randall's Island. Diamond League essentially failed in New York City. The emphasis was then put on the Boston meet and now they're trying Atlanta. Atlanta seems like a better venue for this street meet. The visuals are great. Now let's try to get people to watch it. Give it away to some TV network. And they'll say, oh, well, it got watched on social media. Social media is a separate thing. You can still have TV and social media. Like You still have the rights to social media. But give it to NBC. Give it to ESPN for free. And they'll get you millions of eyeballs, at least a few hundred thousand live. Yeah. You may have to pay for them to take it, Weldon. But part of it's just like, I, mean, I was emailing the PR people at the, in the way, at Atlanta Track Club, like, hey, is this meet on TV? I didn't even know. And maybe they'd send something out. But then I was like, what time is it? It's There's not a set time. And on Saturday night myself, I didn't watch it. I was feeling really bad again. But I was like, wait, the street meets tonight. What time? I'm like, oh, wait, the Oriole game might be on. Do I want to figure out what channel... The, it's weird because I'd actually found it, figured it out the day before and said it was going to be on the Adidas YouTube channel. Then I'm like, do I want to figure that out and go get the computer? I'd rather watch it on TV, but I'm because I'm watching, I'm sitting down on the couch. I know that I could, I technically I could have watched YouTube on my couch, I guess, if I typed in the damn, but it's annoying to do YouTube on TV. So whatever, I didn't watch it. Yeah. Here's the thing even if you're paying a TV network to, Aaron, if you put this thing on like NBC or something, you're going to give it a couple hundred thousand viewers just by default. Adidas, because people will just turn on NBC Sports and that's what's on. Or I guess it, the NBC Sports channel doesn't exist anymore. So now it's like USA. Maybe that's in it. Maybe that's a problem uh, with these, you know, it happened to be on CNBC or something like that. So I forgot about that. But yes, TV, you're probably going to get more than people having to go out of the way to find it on the internet. Because all those people would go out of the way to find it on TV as well. I also think to make this a bit more appealing, cut the prelims in all the sprints. Just have an A section, a B section, a C section if you want to put in more than eight athletes or six athletes or something like that. But this meet was four hours long. That's just too long for a trap meet like this. And you can save a lot of time by getting rid of these prelim rounds where the top athletes always advance anyway. Yeah. With those visuals, the nighttime racing, which I haven't really seen before street meet with the rings, 
fireworks right after. I feel like you could do a one-hour package show for TV or something. Just have, if you want to have the miles and the 5Ks for the local people, make that something else. But there's promise for this, but I don't know. No one's figured out, right, how to make our sport relevant at all. But 6,000 live viewers, it's crazily small. That's worldwide. Think about a minor league baseball game. They get that 6,000 people to actually go watch it. But what's weird about society is the decline of like the mass networks and all these damn streaming channels, the nichification. I guess I should be complaining about the nichification of the world because let's run.com would not be successful. I mean, that's what we are. It's a niche website, but we're not the only ones struggling with this. As a kid up through my probably 30, age 35, even in college, I, I used to really be into the Kentucky Derby. Like I'd read the local paper, but then I'd read USA Today all the time. And USA Today always had a good summary of the big events. So whether it was the U.S. World Cup qualifying in soccer, whether it was Dick Patrick covering track and field, NCAA Olympic trials, whatever it was the other big event, it was Kentucky Derby. It was publicized. Washington Post publicized Kentucky Derby. That's a big event. Nowadays, you're going to your – even if you go to ESPN.com, they know what you're into and they feed you your sports. They don't feed you the important shit. Or they'll feed you what they're showing on TV. So I, I was like, I, I was like, literally on Friday, I was like, it must be Kentucky Derby weekend because it's always like the first weekend of May, right? But I hadn't heard anything about it, nothing, except for some horses dying. Anyways, all right, other events there. Um, Bryce Hopple won the men's 1600, 117, 13. Uh, uh, AJ Wilson won twenty seven flat. The women's 600 women's mile, Taryn Rawlings, 440.11. Men's mile, though, Sam Prankle, he wins all the road miles, right? 403.40. Hobbs Kessler, 403.64. Eric Ovila, 403.92. Drew Hunter, 405.68. That's why you take the money, folks. Well, I guess some people could say, you know, when when they go to college and don't do well, people's like, oh, college ruined him. When they go pro, it's like, oh, the pros ruined him. No, maybe his body just ruined him. Like, he got paid a ton of money. He made a very smart financial choice based on how his career has gone. You're oh, talking oh. here about Drew Hunter and not Hubs Kessler, I assume, Robert. I'm talking about Drew Hunter. Yes, because the 405 is terrible. But I'm, the one I'm interested in is Hubs Kessler. What does this mean? Franco's sort of always knocking on the door but not making worlds. Kessler's a bit behind him, but we still got some time before USA's. What do you think of this result, John? Yeah, I thought Sam Prakel we know is very fit and in great form right now, having just won the double at USA's. So I didn't think if Kefsler got beat by him, it was a disaster. I thought it would be a disaster. And I try not to read too much into a road mile on the first weekend of May anyway, but he was right with him. So was Eric Avila. I think this was, it's not a pan worrying result from Hobbs Kessler. And it was a good win for Sam Prakel because that's, those those guys aren't nobodies, you know. It's solid win for him, but I, I don't think it changes that much for me. I think Kessler still has a shot to make the team. I think Prakel, this is going to be probably his best shot to make the team this year, especially if Cole Hawker can't get healthy. So decent run for those, fine run for those two, and then for Avila to be right with them. I thought that was the guy I was most impressed by. I was like, I I kind of thought. 
Prakel and Kessler would be the cost of this field, that Avila was still with them and leading a lot of this thing, he was the guy I walked away most impressed by. I feel like Avila a couple times in his career has like almost been at the Sam Prakel level. Like the year actually Drew Hunter won the indoor 3K from the B Heat. I think Avila won the A Heat, but he didn't win the national title. Correct. So he still beat, you know, the fastest guys in the US that year, but didn't get credit for it. So he's sort of but now he looks to be a step ahead of Drew Hunter. But making that 1500 meter team, if we think it's hard for Prakel, it's hard for Avila, but the talent, I think, the performances haven't always matched up with a talent or you speculate there might be more he could do and he hasn't quite had the big breakthrough. For who? Avila. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Prankle, I always thought his results were pretty much in line with his talent level, but now I'm thinking... You know, maybe he's maybe he actually does have a chance to do something this year, and this is finally his opportunity, which would be kind of a cool story. Okay, so that is the Atlanta City games. They are going to bring it back next year. They're already saying on the broadcast, Spencer Nell of Adidas, the sports marketing head, he's very excited by how things have gone. They're already planning how to make it better. I do think this meet does have some potential. Um so I'd like to see it grow and become more popular, get more viewers, get it on TV, get more people in person. But these sponsors a lot of top athletes. If they want to bring every, their top stars down and they keep giving us Lyles versus Knighton, I will watch it. Hopefully more than 5,999 people <laughs> will as well. But yeah, it could be a great local event. Now let's try to get some national audience for it. I guess I know you have your interview coming up, so I'm out of here. But folks, this is your chance to get the only your last chance to get the to purchase the Burrito Track Club T-shirt below cost thirteen dollars. Go to shop.letrun.com, enter the code Burrito, and to check out. After tomorrow, they're not going to be for sale. It's only going to be Supporters Club only if we don't sell out. Supporters Club, you can get more. Check your forum for even more three dollars for ten dollars. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening so far and now we will get to our interview with Jesse Williams we are now very pleased to be joined by Jesse Williams he is the former sports marketing director at Brooks he is now the head the founder of Sound Running which is the organization that stages all those fast meets on the west coast including the track fest this past weekend at Mount Sac Jesse thanks for joining us on the show yeah, thanks guys for having me. So, you know, we're sitting here, you've had a few days to debrief after the meet on Saturday night. You know, just how do you feel it went as a whole uh, on Saturday? Yeah, it, it's it's tough because I, I think as a meet director, I don't celebrate the wins as much as I should. I, I look immediately to the things we should fix. Um, and our bigger goal of trying to create a, sustainable marketable product in the track and field space is an ongoing thing it's not going to happen with one meet it's not going to happen overnight but i think sometimes i i I want it to and so when it doesn't or when we don't take as big of a step as i wanted i think i i don't celebrate the wins obviously 
a lot of people ran really fast. We had a lot of national records. We had some, you know, very historical moments on the boys five, you know, boys 5,000 record, Galen Rupp's record going down, Caitlin Tui running the fastest outdoor 5K ever for uh, the women in NCAA, like a lot of other national records going down. Uh, when I sat back and looked at the results yesterday, I, I started to feel a little like, oh, I, I need to pay a little close atten- closer attention to these things and, and not just think of um, all the things we need to make better and fix next time. So overall, happy with it. Um, I think, you know, for the athletes who's, you know, half of our equation, they, they left happy. And what about like things you're less happy about or there any like things you're like, Oh man, that didn't go as well as we wanted it to. Yeah. Um, we knew like when we picked this stadium and we started having these conversations six months ago about where we were going to do this, when we were at uh, Jay Sarah last year in San Juan Capistrano, uh, we had that place as full as it could have been. You know, we had people around the curves. We had, you know, we were pretty much at capacity. People were standing remotely in a lot of places. And we knew to grow this, we had to, we had to move up. And unfortunately, there's not too many in-between places. There's not like the perfect 3,000, 4,000-person stadium that also has all of the other capabilities we're looking for, which is, you know, with the meat product, we're like this jumbo screen that Mount Sac has is amazing. And the the practice facilities that they have is amazing. And the track itself is fast and it's world-class. So when we looked to going there, I knew and thought about it for months and we did so much to um, kind of combat it, but I knew it was going to look empty. I mean, even if we had 5,000 people, which we didn't, it, it was going to look like there were empty seats. And uh, we're going up against CIF finals. I, I think there's just things we can fix. I think we can potentially pick a better date. Um, same time frame, but early season, you know, opener, but a little better date. And uh, I think we got to figure out the stadium piece. Not that there's like a perfect stadium, but I, I think there's ways to corral everybody together. Um, with the beer gardens and the food trucks and everything off the side, half the people, if not more, were out of the picture for any photo or video or anything. So half the people in attendance you couldn't even see. Um, and I don't. I think that also changed like how many people were on top of the track feeling it out. Yeah, I I tweeted out this picture. It was a screenshot of the meet from like a drone above the stadium and you from looking at that you're like oh man no one showed up to this thing because the back straight is virtually empty the upper levels of the home straight virtually empty but then a few seconds after that kyle merber who was at the meet texts me and he's like hey that scoreboard is obscuring the beer garden like a bunch of people are hanging out there so it is you know that was a little bit misleading not to say it was close to sold out but i guess when we look at success of these things, a lot of it is kind of like based on the venue, like the indoor meets, Milrose, it's always packed because the armory is pretty tiny in terms of spectator numbers. So everyone's like, oh, Milrose, they always do a great job. It's always full. This meet in Boston, the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix this year, it was the first year they had it at the track and that play- it looked amazing because the stands were full, but it only seats a few thousand. So what, was the, what were the spectator numbers for your meet? And were you happy with them? Disappointed? Like, how do, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, so we had more people than we had last year. 
Um, and last year, nobody said anything about attendance because we we're at a small venue and it felt the same way that you see like a Milrose or New Balance where if you concentrate people in a small area, um, which you have the ability to do with these indoor venues, I think does the Armory holds like 2000, something like that. I don't know how much the track at New Balance holds, but um, we had around 2000 for this meet last year, we had a little less than that. Um, but like Kyle's Hexadu, they were spread out because there's the beer garden, there's food trucks behind there. And then there was like kind of a field where I think just uh, we needed to congregate them. And I think you bring all those people into one little area and it's going to look better, but that's the reality of outdoor track and field. And they're not set up the same way Like indoors is such a nice product because 2000 people, you fill the place, you sell it out. You can price tickets wherever you want because the armory has been a sell for Milrose pretty much every year. So um, for us, we priced the ticket low and we did everything we could to get people to show up. I mean, to the point to where we had a crew putting flyers on cars at every high school meet in the area the last month, right? Like guerrilla marketing type stuff, not, you know, Instagram paid ads, but like we were doing everything. We were sending out emails to all the high school coaches in the area. We're doing as much to hype up the fields and races, you know, starting six weeks, eight weeks out. But going up against the CIF prelims here in California, which is like the beginning of their journey to state, um, everybody competes all day long at that meet. And some of their competitions go right till six, almost seven o'clock, where, and they're an hour away. Or there was one that was a little closer. Um, we're, a lot of the fans that come to our events are high school athletes. And we're going head to head against that. And I think, I, I look at it and go, oh, yeah, like we're going to offer uh, dinner and track and a concert. And people will come right after uh, prelims because why wouldn't you? But it's just, it's different. You know, there's, it's a full day. We're going up against that. And, you know, I think I had mentioned to, to several people, we're a little different here in LA too, in that we're competing against like 12 professional teams, the beach, um, traffic, uh, the fact that, each area of LA has different kind of priorities and everything, you know? So I just think that all those things taken in consideration, um, affected what we were doing, but our goals were much higher for attendance. I, I never thought we were going to fill this place, but wanted to, I, I, you know, you, you hope that crazy things happen and that we do. Um, but I think, yeah, our goals were, I thought we might get four or 5,000 because adding the musician, and adding the concert and, you know, touting kind of like the ticket price there, you know, there's no better value concert track me, uh, dinner for $15. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. First of all, you give away free food. You should charge more. I'm, I'm all about the bargain, but this is amazing. But uh, I just want to get out there for reference. I think beforehand we got on air, like last year you were at a 1500 seat stadium. It looked packed. It looked amazing. This year you have more people, but the stadium seats, I think you said 10,000. So like, yeah, you could double the number and you still look pretty small. And I think that's a problem with our sport. Like it's just not popular enough right now, but I applaud you this year because you also tightened the schedule. You had the concert, you had the beer garden, free food. It's like, okay. So everybody who came this year, I assume they had a better experience than they did last year, like in terms of maybe except for the crowd and feeling something, whatever, but there's actually more people there, but you get food, you get entertained. Hopefully they all come back and they bring some friends next year. Right. I mean, I assume this is a go for next year. 
Yeah, that's the idea. Um, we, we look at it as if we can take what we have and, and we put together that good of a show, um, a good reference is a friend of mine that I run with uh, weekly here in Santa Monica. His wife's from Australia and he, he convinced her to come out to the meet. And she doesn't follow track, doesn't pay attention, not super into sports in general. And came to the meet and was like, wait, is this, did they do this all the time? This is so much fun. And I just thought like, okay, that's what I needed to hear. I needed to hear that like a non-sports fan came to it and they were entertained and they, they asked if there were more. And I was like, if we can do that, now would they do that at a 10 hour all day meet with 20 minutes in between races? I mean, maybe, maybe like, maybe they got into the racing, but I like to think that it's the product and that we made it more entertaining and that we are tightening things. So big win was the meat product itself. The loss was, uh, yeah, it was, that place is huge. So like the way it felt for athletes last year, for fans to be like on top of them. And there's great photos we have of like Inga Britson being mobbed by people afterwards and that was not as possible in this big of a venue. And uh, so I think that part, you know, was a little bit of a, a learning and a loss, but I think the meat product and our goals for that part of it were, were achieved. Yeah, I liked all the stuff you, you guys added this year with the beer tent and the food trucks, the, the even the concert. I'm, I'm not even, I mean, I didn't actually see any of the concert because I was kind of writing and working, but... You know, I, I like people who are trying new things and trying to make their meats popular. Like, was that well received in general? I know you sp you spoke about the wife of your running partner, but did you hear any other feedback from people about whether they thought the beer garden was good, the food trucks, the concert? What was what what were you hearing in terms of feedback? Yeah, we've had a lot of feedback, at least from the athletes on the concert. They they just and it was it was fun and it was electric and it was like a lot going on at that time and. I did feel like that was a huge ad. Um, the beer garden itself, it's one of those soapbox things that everybody gets on. Like there should be beer at these sporting events. There should be bedding. There should be the beer part we can potentially help with right now. And we're very lucky Mount Sac was able to secure a permit. It's really hard because you're at college facilities a lot of the time and facilities that you're just not allowed to have beer on premise. You're not allowed to do all these things. So getting a beer permit was a gigantic hurdle and Mount Sac was able to like let us do that. We've been trying that for every meet for three years. This is literally the first time we got like an approval to do it. We did it. I want to hear more about it because it was so hard to get that done. I want more people to like tell us like how great that was, but I didn't get to experience it. I didn't get to like really go into the beer garden and see what the, the vibe was there. So I need to like debrief with some people. Um, but the concert was really well received. I know like a lot of the athletes came onto the field and based on their posts and stuff they, you know, kind of shared with us personally, it seemed like they felt, wow, this was really cool. I was happy to be here. Was the concert during the 10Ks or before? It was before. So originally we didn't have 10Ks in the program. Um, you know, with the 10 being majority of the people running a big early season 10k we we didn't think the field to be that full and then a lot of people reached out to us asking us to hold a 10k and then as we got closer to the meet the we just looked and we we're like there's not really that many people in these 10ks and if we put those right before the concert it, it we're like it's just like the meet program itself we want to keep it tight and like action-packed 
And so we decided to put the 10Ks afterwards, which makes how fast and how well they ran that much more impressive um, because I would say 70% of the people there left after the concert. You know, so the women had some people around for a little bit, but, you know, for Fiona, Fiona and Diane to run as fast as they did and, um, you know, Adrian just uh, run 27-22 out there later at night. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, the Doha Diamond League was only two hours, and I'm not sure what happened, but like three quarters through that, the place cleared out. <laughs> by, the, by the women's 1500 two-hour meet, nobody was in Doha. But the other angle is the the viewership angle. Um, and we were talking a little bit beforehand about the Adidas. Adidas had you know a meet in Atlanta, probably a multi-million dollar budget for that thing, Atlanta City Games. They were free on the internet pay-per-view. I mean, excuse me, free on YouTube. And we're shocked. Noah Lyles, Knighton, they only had 6,000 highest concurrent view- viewers at one time. You guys tried the opposite approach, doing the pay-per-view, and then the races are now free on the internet. Afterwards, how were the viewership numbers? And you know, talk a little bit about the decision to go pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't know the numbers yet. I haven't. Like, We've had so many other conversations we have. I honestly, uh, the Tracklandia crew called me just while we were on this. And so I'm sure that's why I was going to get the numbers. But um, we feel really strongly about the pay-per-view, at least and as a pick an event, do it, see what we can do. Because the upside on the pay-per-view, I think I shared that the first time we did the 10, it was during the pandemic, which was also a different time. But we had 60,000 people watch on YouTube live. And where, where that came from is I was like, that was great. We did it. That was our first event. We've never even streamed anything. We didn't feel like we had the ability to charge. And then once we dialed in the product and Tracklandia crew has really like done amazing things, we felt that $5.99, you're not subscribing to anything. It's a one-off. I want to watch my friend run. Thanks for the service. And the fact that all that money went to the prize purse, naively, we honestly thought this is the coolest thing ever because it benefits the top athletes to promote that they're racing and to come watch because they're the ones, the prize purse gets bigger and bigger for them. And it's the only piece in our sport that I can think of where there's a revenue share uh, with TV or with uh, streaming. Um, Not the Olympics, not US champs, not any of these other events that are streamed. The only revenue share in our sport is via this. And so we really really thought it'd be bigger than it is right now. We're willing to stick with it because we still think the upside is huge. Um, You know, the prize purses of these meets aren't gigantic. To be a gold level meet, you need 200,000 people. You know, that would mean 25,000 people would have to watch this live to be gold, gold level. That's not, I mean, 25,000 is such a small number um that's less than run these big city marathons we see all the time right and we know those people exist so yeah we're going to keep pushing the pay-per-view and we do think there's a that we think the upside's worth the 5.99 and we're going to keep keep doing that but yeah I'll, i'll get back to you guys with the numbers but the numbers are small um generally for these meets we see anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 people purchase pay-per-view I mean, that's not bad. I mean, this Adidas meet had 6,000 people max free. I mean, at one point on the live stream. And it had, that's super surprising. That's crazy. I was shocked. 
how many followers does Noah Lyles have on Instagram? Like even just doing that, if he did a live Instagram event, he, he might would, have. He would get that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Well, what were you saying about the gold level? I didn't quite catch what you were saying. Yeah. So gold, a gold level meet um, usually has somewhere around 200,000 in prize purse. And that's one of the things that make it a gold level meet. But that would only take for us to do to do that prize purse wise. That would only take about that would take exactly twenty five thousand people because it's four dollars out of the five ninety nine goes to that, and that's that's about the biggest earnings you're going to get a domestic meet here. USATF has a gold level meet coming up. Pre is Diamond League, and I think that's more like three hundred thousand, three hundred fifty thousand prize purse. Um, but there's usually more events, so it's spread a little thinner. Um, but yeah, I mean, then there's the upside of well, what if we had a hundred thousand people watching? There'd be four hundred thousand dollars in the prize purse, and that would still all go to the athletes. And so I, I, I think that revenue share, we still believe that's powerful enough to not just abandon, put this free on YouTube because we can probably go back to our sponsors and say, hey, if this is free, you know, we need this much more to help supplement the prize purse for it to be free. But there's no, the upside is, yeah, there's more people watching and it's free. So they get a little bit more value, but there's no upside in the athlete prize purse because it doesn't matter how many people watch for them. The prize purse is just the price. So we're trying this and hoping that as we build the sport that, you know, if we can get millions of people to tune in and watch people who aren't even professional boxers fight. I just got to believe that we can get people to watch these people at the top of their game, uh, race each other, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm kind of curious how sound running got to this point, because I would say, you guys are now sort of the go-to place if someone in America wants to run a fast 5K or 10K. And for a while, that was the Stanford meets, uh, Peyton Jordan in particular. But now I think it's you. That's where most of the pros go. How do you how did you come to occupy this position? Was it because you guys were the only ones ho- holding these meets during COVID or was it something else? Like, how do you guys get to this point? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. I think... Some of it is right place, right time. Um, we did our first meet before COVID um, in July, that year that Doha was so late that US champs weren't till late July. So we filled a gap in the schedule. We did our first meet. And via a couple texts and emails to agents and coaches, we had like this amazing meet. And as soon as we did that, kind of, you know, we just looked at this and we go, okay, well, obviously there's a need for this because this shouldn't be this easy. It was like, 10 minutes of texting and we had a really good meet. And so that means there's a need. And so we thought, okay, well, let's, let's next year, let's do a couple summer meets and let's do uh, this May event. COVID hit. All of a sudden it became have an event, um, make a safe event. And so I think COVID allowed us to build a space where athletes trusted us. They ran fast so when we came out of COVID, we said, hey, we're going to do this again. And it was our meet that had points and prize money versus college meet where 
They're an also runs. I mean, they're pros, so they're the big names showing up, but the meet is met for college athletes. And the pros were just attaching themselves to it because there weren't other options. Now there's a professional, and I think those two should exist separately. I think college meets, Peyton Jordan should be the super college meet uh, for those distances like it always has been. And and our meet should be that for the the athlete looking to run those times. And so, yeah, a little bit of it is COVID helped us kind of carve out that niche. Uh, another piece of it is where we're located. Um it's not hard to convince people to come to LA. It's not hard to convince people that they're going to run fast in this weather. Um, and, you know, I think we're pretty, you know, there's always hurdles and, and things that come up, but we set up the races to run fast. I think the quality of mass helps it as well. Um, and then, yeah, they get points and they get prize money now. So like we, we keep having to entice the athletes to come back. It can't just be fast because now, now you need points because fast isn't good enough. So we have to make sure we get points for them. So we have to up the ante for that. Um, but yeah, I think it's nice for them to feel like we're the main show. This is our meet. This isn't, we're also running a college meet and we're here. They're the main show there too, but they're not the only show. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, honestly, there was room for this to exist. And I think we filled that void and that, you know, a little luck on our part. Um, but that's why I think we're where we are and we're going to have to keep working hard to stay where we are. Cause I think you have to just better it every year. In terms of the Stanford meet, it's crazy. I think there was one finisher in the women's 10 K this year. Like you guys have obliterated that meet in terms of performance. But on the other end, like as a meet director, does you, does USA track and field reach out to you and help you or world athletics is, is do you hear from other meet directors or is are they competitive with you? Then being in LA, also, are you guys starting? I mean, there's Bobby Kersey meet, but is there any? Are you able to kind of get into this Olympic movement coming up and hopefully maybe get some of those dollars? Yeah, I mean, we're in a perfect place for that. I wouldn't say that people are like coming to us left and right saying, "Hey, can we get involved?" Um, sponsors, maybe to some degree. You know, I think we've built enough our name that like we're able to get people to come and help us and want to be involved and they see what we do. USATF, um, they've been peripherally helpful with like little things here and there. This year, they really stepped it up, step up in a big way. And, um, you know, when you're a silver label event, you have to do a certain amount of testing. And that testing bill is honestly bigger than you would think. Um, you know, it's like almost $10,000 to just test people how many athletes uh, i think they do like literally less than 10 people they just i don't I, and to be honest i don't know if it's what the protocol is if it's the winners or whatever i let the group that tests it that does it they grab who they need and they do the testing and we you know sign off on what we're supposed to do for a clean sport and world athletics but like that's a lot of money that we were and ten thousand dollars in testing is like for an independent organization we'd rather see that going to prize money um because the you know, and I know clean sport floats all boats as well, but USATF stepped in and helped us this year um, with the testing piece and very, very cool of them to do that because I think they saw the benefit of um, a lot of people are getting their qualifiers here, whether it's USAs or Worlds. Um, so our, our meets are helping those teams become better. Um, 
And so I think they saw that. And I'm hoping that as we get closer to this March to 2028, that both USATF, um, LA 2028, and, and other groups, we all come together to create. I mean, our goal is for this track fest to be the best meet in the world, um, not to be part of the Diamond League, but to be the best meet in the world. Because I think the Diamond League is made for Europe and it's not made for the US. And we need something that builds up the sport in the US. Europe, the sport's doing well. Um, you, you can go to packed stadiums there all the time to see that. And you can look, open the front page of a newspaper to see that, right? But here, we have to build something that works for the audience here. And that's our goal. And so those partners would only help that. What was your prize money again? Uh, so it was silver label meat. So basically this $5,000 per event. It goes six deep, I believe. I have to look because we're actually writing all those checks this week. So I have to go through and... But roughly the total budget's what? Oh, for prize money? I mean, that's a good question. I need to look. There's We spend, if there's 10 events, yeah, we spend at least... 50, 60K in prize money. But I mean, that's crazy, right? Think about the drug testing. What percent of the money in track goes to drug testing? Imagine if MLB spent, say it's one-tenth or one-twelfth of the money, prize money goes to drug testing. I mean, if, if the major pro sports took drug testing as seriously as we did, every I mean, it would be so, there'd be so much more money to detect stuff. It's crazy. Like, our sport doesn't have much money, and we rightfully, I think, put so much money into clean sport, but we do. And it's, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I could not be more of a clean sport, you know, pound the gap. Like, but then when you get hit with a 10 K price tag for testing, with you. yeah. you're like, what? And I'm like, why do we have to be the ones that catch this? Let somebody else catch, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, no, no, this is like your thing. You can't, you can't duck. But so it was really good. Uh, you know, USATF came in and I think I think that is where USATF comes in to these things is they're a nonprofit. They're not supposed to potentially be the product. They're supposed to be the organization running the infrastructure of our sport, you know, and the infrastructure of our sport does involve testing and involves athlete funding and involves the youth It involves putting on a, a made a U.S. championship to select teams. Right. And so I think, that's part of like, I love that they did that for us because I think that's right where they come into this sport and where they can really help some of us independent organizations who are trying to build a business of the sport. Um, they can make it less of an obstacle for us because uh, obviously clean sport benefits everybody. Um, I guess minus the cheaters. So, Yeah, kudos USATF. That's, a, that's what you should be doing. This might be a first. We're praising USATF. All of us. Um, hey, kudos. I mean, honestly, I, I'm as opinionated as anybody about when I, whether it's my best friend or an organization, if they do something wrong, call them out on it. And I've called USATF out an, a number of times on different things, but I have to do the other side, right? I have to say like when they step up. Yeah, nobody's all good or all bad. So it, it's good, yeah. to, you know, here behind the scenes, they're helping. And um, I guess one of the logistical thing, like, you guys don't pay for the athletes to come in, right? They're sort of on their own. Is that the travel, which I think is good? It's, but that's an advantage you guys have. People know they're going to go fast. Their company, shoe companies, I assume, foot the bill. Is that sort of how it works on that front? Yeah. So this is honestly a really interesting piece of this because we got asked this a little bit coming in. 
And the hardest thing is to decide what we pay for and what we don't. And so our sport's really funny in that travel would be so monumentally hard to figure out for some of these things. Because our meet isn't just 80 people, diamond or, you know, tight little whatever, we fly everybody in and they all get appearance fees. It's it's more of like if you hit a standard, we we're going to figure out, we're going to get a section for you. You're going to run fast. You're going to get your qualifier. So, you know, 300 total athletes come and compete at this meet. And the reality is the athletes that we probably would pay for, um, you know, the top level people, the Joseph Andrews or the Yard Goose or, you know, the Josh Kerr's, right? Um, they all have travel budgets. They're either on a team. They have their contractual tra- travel budget. I used to sign those uh, ex- expense approval forms. Like I know what those budgets are. Um, so the reality is, is those people would already get their travel paid for. So us giving them travel would kind of be, wouldn't make any sense. The people that need the most travel, unfortunately, oh, and this is also a USATF tiered event. So if you're a tiered athlete, you can submit your travel to USATF and get it paid. And that's also probably that same group. Um, so the unfortunate thing is the middle ground. It's the athletes who are really fast and trying to get to the next level that don't have travel budget. And then how do I, how do, how do we make travel fair for them? Uh, how do we say, well, you're this fast, we'll give you this much travel, or you're this fast, we'll give you this much travel. We've just taken the approach. We're going to put everything in the prize purse. We're going to set up races for you. We're going to pay pacers to make sure your race is fast. And you guys get here on your own. Now, that's not necessarily how we always want it to be, but that's how we've been for the most part. It'd be a really monumental kind of politically weird thing to figure out who we're paying for and who we're not. Um, Because then the line would be drawn to be like, well, you're paying for this 408 girl, but not for this 339 guy. Why not? You know, and it's like, how do you, how do you do that? Um, and it does, it creates, and this is something I saw when I was in sports marketing, that unsigned superstar, and it sounds funny to say that, but those people exist in our sport. These people who are doing some amazing things, they don't have a contract yet for one reason or another. Maybe they didn't want to join one of the teams. So they didn't get a contract. They didn't want to move. They have a college coach they work with, whatever reason they didn't do it. Those are the people who are fighting this uphill battle in our sport because they need travel. They need all those extras and they're, yeah, they're caught in this middle ground. And that's the toughest part with these events is trying to take care of those athletes as best we can, but knowing that it's just easier for us to put all the money in the prize purse and say, come one, come all, here's, the, here's where the money is. Yeah. And what about like actually entering yourself in the meet? Because we, we have this situation in the U.S. track and field. Some of these BU meets indoors, athletes will actually have to pay to enter the meet. Whereas they go out in the Diamond League, these same athletes, you know, one or two of them, might be getting paid to show up an appearance fee. Do you pay any sort of appearance fee or do you charge any sort of entry fee to the athletes? Yeah, no, this is another one of those things. And this is probably the only thing that the travel thing, I, I will sit down and talk anybody through that at forever because it's, it's just very hard to figure out. I think once people hear the behind the scenes, they understand why we don't pay for travel as of right now. That, that will always be the case. Um, we want to be able to. The, the, um, the registration, we actually do charge for registration because for us, 
it sounds funny to say this is almost like um, it's a reservation on the line. You're making a reservation for your spot on the line. If we just said, hey, you send us whether you want to run, fill out this form, tell us what event you're going to run, and we built all these fields, we would get to the day of the meet. And those fields would be like half full. There would be entire races where we'd have to, it'd be the ugliest, like most ridiculous track and field event ever because it's so easy just to sign up. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Oh, that's in two months. Yeah, I'm going to run 10K. And then we would build these fields. We'd add an extra heat and then we'd get there. And none of, like 50% of these people wouldn't show up or they'd want to switch races or they'd want to do it. When you have to get out your credit card and say, I'm running this, whether it's your agent or yourself, um, you're, you're way more serious. Now, do we still get no shows? Do we still get scratches? Do we still get all those things? We do, but it's like 1% instead of like potentially 30 and it doesn't change our meat. You know, we'll move, like we move up somebody last second, like Ben Ciotti got sick and he had a top spot in the 15 hour. We moved up rabbit, Robert Happenstall who ends up winning the race, but we didn't have eight people not show up. And then our heat was completely demolished. Are, yeah. And so that's something we want to figure out. We want to get with other meat directors because I know Portland Track Festival and a lot of a lot of other events, even on the pro side, they charge. And you know, like I said, most of these companies, almost all those athletes, even like the, the teams and the people that are sponsored, once again, their sponsors are paying those registration fees. So it's, it's once again that middle group. And so maybe it's something we can do for them, but we also just have to make sure that people are showing up. Uh, it's the equivalent of if you can make four reservations for Friday nights at restaurants and just pick which one you wanted to on Friday, you couldn't do that now because you have to put your credit card down. You have to pay a fee if you don't show up. I kind of look at it the same way as that. And it has nothing to do with money because it's not that much. It would basically pay for some of the drug testing, but not all of it. It's not that much. It basically pays for our timing. It's so that meat management works. Um, and so I don't, USCTF may be a little different because this is your only conduit to get to USAs. I mean, to get to Worlds or Olympics. So I don't think you're going to get no-shows. Um, but I'm guessing they use it for, I don't know, behind the scenes. So I can't say that, but I'm guessing it's a little bit similar for them too. Which is weird. Diamond leagues, when there's only 12 spots and people are dying to get a spot on the line. So if we did this meet on Saturday and we only had 12 spots in each event or, you know, whatever, we wouldn't have to do registration fees because we'd have so many people that wanted those spots. We wouldn't be worried about filling those lanes. But because we offer so many heats, so many different um, sections and pacing and whatnot, this is just our way of ensuring that the meat is set up properly and that fields are full and people get the best chance. But it's something we're like looking to get rid of. We just looking for a better option right now. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the explanation because I, I wasn't sure if you guys charged it and the explanation you gave kind of makes sense to me. So we I do. Think. I mean, we haven't raised our prices since we started like 2019. We didn't, you know, we're not trying to make money off it, but it is a reservation. That's how we look at it. I'm a high school kid. I mean, I got no problem charging people. I think I paid to enter USATF, right? Like you pay some nominal fee. And like you said, you get drug testing out of it. You are getting some services out of it. If I, if I, I guess you could argue, oh, 
professional sports, the athletes don't pay, but not everyone here is a pro. Yeah, I mean, the, the good example like saying, budget. is like if it was like a Diamond League setup where there's one race, there's eight to 12 people in those races. That's a little bit more like the rest of sports are. There's 12 guys on a basketball team. There's this many guys doing this. And so that makes sense. But with our meet being more of like a pro, all-comer, amateur, mel- melting pot, um, in order for us to like put everything together, you know, I think that makes more sense for us right now. But if we did just a boutique, come what, you know, top heat thing, and we knew who was coming, we wouldn't charge because we would have people begging for one of those spots instead of, you know, getting a spot no matter what. Yeah. So I think it's also, you can do that for a diamond level event when people are from all over the world are dying for one of those 12 spots. All right. One last thing I wanted to hit before we let you go. Uh, Mount Sac in the stadium. We've had four straight Olympic trials in Eugene and Mount Sac was supposed to host the trials in 2020. They had it taken away from them because the USATF ostensibly was worried the stadium might not be completed in time. Do you think Mount Sac should host the trials at some point? Like, do you think they should host next year? Do you think they would be a good host? You're a South Car- Southern California guy now. Like, what's your take on the stadium, whether it's suitable to hosting, whether it would be a good trials, whether people would show up? Yes. Um, and, and not saying this because we're down here and it'd be easier for me to get there every day. It's, um, it is the most amazing stadium. The backdrop is these rolling green hills. It looks like Microsoft Windows surrounding stadium. It's beautiful. beautiful. They, they have a, a great practice facility. Their parking set up. It, it is, Hayward is a beautiful stadium and it has so many things added to it. Uh, the design of it, the colors, the history of Eugene. And I think it's tough to beat that. But Mount Sac Stadium was designed from a meat director point of view. It was built for the 2020 trials. And it is so well built to host really big marquee events, whether it's the broadcast booth, whether it's the setup they have for the satellite truck to come in the back, the practice field, the way everything connects, the infrastructure we used to maybe like 25% of that stadium's capabilities for our meet. That, that stadium can do a million things, the jumbotron, the parking, everything. So it's, it's set up as, as well or better than Hayward. Um, and it does have its own history as well. I think being in LA is obviously a much bigger media market. You can fly right into Ontario. It's 10 minutes away. Um, you could do you know, I live in Santa Monica, it's half an hour drive for me, but people could go to the Olympic trials and stay at the beach and drive half an hour to the truck, you know, to the track, or you could be right there and, and you could see downtown and be more like 15 minutes away. Um, I think from that point of view and people at Mount know how to put on gigantic events. Um, they host a 20,000 person high school cross-country invitational every October where they run a race every seven minutes. I mean, these people know how to put on events. Um, and so, and they're, they built this stadium to do just that. So I think it'd be a pity if we didn't see a trials there at some point, or at least a U.S. championship or something. And 
that could be in the works. I know Nike has a relationship with Mount Sac now. They sponsor the school. And so for all we know, that's somewhere in the works. But I would love to see it. I think they're as equipped as anybody. Okay, because I was going to ask you if you had any sort of insider information. Because I don't really know anyone at Mount Sac, but they built this stadium and then it's it is ready in time for the trials, but by then they're delayed and Eugene mm-hmm. hosts them. And then Eugene has USA's last year. Obviously, they had the Worlds. So they're not going to have the Worlds at Mount Sac, but Eugene had USA's last year. They've got USA's against this year. I I haven't even heard of Mount Sac. I don't know if the people there were upset that they got the trials yanked away or if they're just waiting to bid for 2024, but do you have any insight into whether they're still interested in hosting? I don't know that I don't know about a bid for 2024. I know that there was some political stuff in the background and not not uh, it was more I think issues in the community. Um, it, I, I don't know exactly the 2020 trials thing. I just know that they should host. It's a beautiful stadium. Fans would benefit, everybody athletes would benefit. I think fast times. Uh, you know, both like the, for the distance races and for the sprints because of the weather here. Like it's hot during the day for the sprints and it's cool at night um, because of where it's located. Uh, so it's really the best of both worlds. I do think um, you could you could feel like a, something like the Olympic trials could draw major, major crowds. So you're not trying to just squeeze everything you can out of Eugene. Um LA is gigantic and there's so many people here. And I think it's one thing when you're doing a small meet like ours, another thing when you bring in athletes from all over the world or, you know, or athletes from all over the U S in every event um, for something as significant as the Olympic trials. I don't know if they're bidding. I hope they're bidding. Um, I do work with their special events crew and, and team. And I know that's a gigantic undertaking. And I think maybe they're a little burned, um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, they need to, and I hope they do. It's, and it'd be great for LA 2028, right? I mean, you know, at very least they should host the 2028 trials. Well, I was assuming the 28 trials might be at the Coliseum, which I think will be hosting the actual Olympics if it's ready by then. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, but I, I, I've been to these meets in Eugene the last couple of years, and they they hold, look Eugene does a great meet job yeah. hosting the meet, and they have this beautiful facility. It makes sense that you need to hold some meets there. But I've also seen the attendance decline. Like the last year's pre-classic, last year's U.S. Championships was not what it was like pre-pandemic at the old Haywood Field. The attendance numbers were down. So whether it's Eugene fatigue or just the trap base in Eugene is less interested or they're getting old, I don't know. But I do feel like there is an argument to be spreading some of these meets around a little bit, even if we got to keep having a couple of big meets at Eugene every year. Yeah, I don't even fall. Um, like, obviously, Trackdown crushes it, and they, you know, as professional organization of putting on events as anybody in the world. But um, I do think the sport will benefit from having major meets in other cities because um, that's just good for the sport, right? Uh, yeah. And I, I do think that no matter what, between NCAAs and some of these national high school meets and trials and USA's, Eugene's going to have a very full calendar every year, um, no matter what. So to move a U.S. champs or trials here and there to a, another major city or a major city, like I think it still works for everybody. And I think 
part of what was special about Eugene that it was tough for them in like these last couple of years because they held everything is when you went to pre or when you went to the trials every four years, it was special. And then when every single meet there is a little less special. And so I think that's gotta be the hardest job in the world is like to have that many meets and to try to get everybody to show up to every one of them. Um, so it probably benefit them too, to ha- keep things special, make Eugene this really special venue that you get to do every certain amount of years rather than how can people get tired of Hayward Field? They should never, ever get tired of Hayward Field. It's the most, the running trails, the community, the, the facilities, it should be special. And so I think it helps them too. Mm-hmm. Well, you got anything else for Jesse? No, thank you. Yeah, no, Appreciate thank you guys. It. It's, it's a good you time. You start packing these meets. I mean, it shows, right? Like we're talking about Hayward Field. They obviously know how to put on big meets, but even with the Worlds last year, we couldn't fill that thing every day. Adidas, they got all this money in this Atlanta meet. You know, cool facility, great visuals, but nobody was watching it live. You know, your meet, more people than last year, but not as many as you wanted. But yeah, I, I applaud the people in the arena, you know, trying these things. You know, we yeah. just sit here and criticize you guys, so... Keep up the good work. Keep trying. Yeah. Um, and I think you can build something, right? I think your area, LA, with the Olympics and stuff, you know, if you if you can have the like, premier distance event in the country, essentially, every year, it's a thing. Maybe maybe people from even outside of the LA area will start coming to and want, want to see it. Or, you know, they want to go to vacation. They'll, they'll make it that weekend just, just so they can see your meet as well. No, it'll be, I mean, that's the idea. And I think the more of us that work together, whether it's us in USATF and you guys and all the different people in the sport trying to do something, you guys have your piece of the sport. We have our piece. USATF does their piece. Like, And I think a lot of us are doing amazing things, potentially in our silos. How do we bring all those things together? Because our sport isn't super successful and it's going to take this like holding hands effort and i don't know 100 what that looks like but i know every you know working together is only going to help and so i'm starting to see that from different groups we had a lot of different groups involved at this meet and it felt good it felt like okay we're all on the same page um but i think that could only benefit us and we have to do it because it's it's just too small of a sport right now um, to not all work together. And so I'm glad, you know, I'll thank you guys for all the uh, the educating pieces you did leading up and the help. And then obviously John's write-up afterwards. We actually linked to that on our site for rather than me do a giant write-up. I was like, and if you full full race report. So appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on, Jesse. And uh, I'm sure our parts will cross at a meet or two this summer as well. Absolutely. I like the hat too. Can people buy those on the website? Yeah, yeah, we have a bunch. So if you uh, you guys send me your address and we'll send some out. Okay, I'll put yeah. a link in the show notes too. Yeah, it's very cool. Sound running hat. That will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back with the Friday fifteen on Friday. Join the Let's Run dot com supporters club. Let's Run dot com slash subscribe in order to get access to that. 
preview the weekend meets. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Jesse.